This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? I'm good, Conrad. Boy, this is the first for me. We got video. Yeah, I'm glad, dress, I'm glad I got dressed this morning. I am too. And so are we, of course, uh, you're getting your shows early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. And of course, now we're doing them on video and this is our first video podcast with Mr. Jim Ross and man, I'm excited to talk about this one because it's the only WWF or E pay-per-view in my home state of Alabama. It's Armageddon 2000. It sounds like a sci-fi movie with Bruce Willis, but in fact, it is a one match show that went down at the Birmingham Jefferson civic center on December 10th, 2000. And, um, I guess this is pretty special show for me. It's the only time I got to see a WWF pay-per-view in my old stomping grounds. Alabama was a big territory though. Why don't you think the WWE targeted the state more often with big shows? Well, it's the same theory that uh, they, they, uh, that they would run say Oklahoma. And all my years there, we had one pay-per-view in Oklahoma uh, and they got an NBA arena and all that good stuff. So it wasn't facility, but largely it's just McMahon was selective about where he went and he perceived some markets as less than uh, they under delivered or whatever. Uh, it's hard to say, uh, but I think the regionality, uh, facility, this routing in general, you know, if you do pay-per-view in, in, uh, Birmingham. Okay. Then how do, can you draw, are you able from that population base to draw a good raw and SmackDown? It's not just one the pay-per-views are part of a three show package. That's right. So, so some states are better equipped population wise to facilitate three uh, events in a row, three days in a row uh, than, than others in the WWE way of thinking. So, uh, I, I think that's probably part of just the, the regionality, the, the, where do you go? I think. I remember I told you one time I went to the OU Alabama game, uh, when Shula was a coach, I don't know what year that was long, long, long time ago. I got down there on Friday. I went to the game on Saturday. I read the newspaper, ate dreamland barbecue on Sunday. And then we had raw in Birmingham on Monday. And then, uh, SmackDown, I think was in Huntsville uh, back in that, in that, in that point in time, but it's just hard to package those three shows together, Conrad. That's all, but boy, the crowd was great. You know, 
uh, Alabama being a very viable territory at one time, a part of a viable territory, right. certainly, uh, the fans knew how to react. They were, they were waiting on the event. They were excited. They were at, at the anticipation was excellent. So, uh, I, I always look at that show. I was telling you before we went in the air, the two things I remember about that event, it was a one show, one match show mm-hmm. in theory, there are other matches on there, obviously, but the main event had six of our biggest stars in it. And I always thought that was iffy putting all six of your top guys in one match takes away your depth. Cause you now you got all the, now who's left. So who's left, you got to come up with a, some more matches that are, are decent. And I don't know, I don't know what that goal was successful or not, but, and, but I do remember the crowd being 14,000 plus, uh, I remember they were emotionally invested. They were loud. They were fun. So it was a good trip for me. Cause I ate barbecue every day. It's hard to believe I know that. It's interesting to talk about this, this time period, because the company is excited to have a, a hot crowd, but it's not a sellout. And Meltzer would note that it's the first pay-per-view that the WWF has put out in recent memory. That wasn't a sellout. He would say when the advance was disappointing, there were a lot more comp tickets than for any WWF pay-per-view event in a while, including a deal where they would give free tickets to anyone buying season tickets to the Birmingham bolts, XFL team, which only has sold a few thousand tickets and has an 83,000 seat building to play in (laughs) when all was said done, it was almost full 14,920 tickets out, which is just 220 under capacity, which would be considered so close to make a deal of it. Not being a sellout would be silly, except there were 3000 comps. So the paid is only 11,924. So it sounds like, oh man, that's not good news, but check this out. The gate is $572,990. It's an all-time record for pro wrestling in the state of Alabama. Merchandise is another $83,977. So Jim, in 2000, even the WWF's bad days are still pretty damn good. Yeah, they were, but see, that's the advance of that show gives McMahon more cannon fodder to not run markets in regions like Birmingham, Alabama. Mm Mm-hmm. Because we had been on that roll. It's awful nice of Melser to point those things out so we could get further depressed uh, <laughs> about our lack of success or God's sakes. Uh, but again, I, I had, it was a very positive experience for me. Everybody, <clears throat> pardon me. Everybody went in knowing that we got to get through these earlier matches to get to the main event. And, uh, I don't know that we were successful in doing that quite frankly. We'll talk about that in more depth, obviously, but, uh, I, I thought it was a, it was a good show and, and and like you said, financially, it wasn't, it wasn't anything bad. No, it was a good show. Yes. It made money. So, yes. and at the end of the day, that's what you're there for. I do want to mention it's a 13 pay-per-view streak of sellouts. Uh, the last time they failed to sell out was unforgiven September 26, 1999 at the Charlotte Coliseum. They were a few thousand shy there and believe it or not the time before that, that they struggled to sell out. Uh, was July of 97, the famous Calgary stampede pay-per-view, which critics and fans think is one of the best company pay-per-views of all time, but again, not a sellout. So it's rare in this era that a pay-per-view didn't sell out, but Birmingham did not. One thing that I do want to mention, that's a little odd. ECW ran a pay-per-view in the same town the next month. I don't, I don't know how that even happens, but it seems to me like if I'm Paul Heyman, I'm probably going to try to avoid anywhere the WWF or WCW is running whenever possible. 
Uh, but this is the first WWF pay-per-view in, in Alabama history. And then the very next month, it's the first ECW pay-per-view in Alabama history. That feels to me like, uh, a missed opportunity on, on Heyman's part. Would you agree? Yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, ironic that they would do that. I'm not sure. <clears throat> pardon me. The motivation, uh, for that, because you kind of let the fan base, the, the attendees, uh, restock their shells disposable income. Yes. And he didn't give that, uh, a lot of time, especially when you get a lot of people getting paid by on the, by weekly, weekly and having a, you know, it's not a big white collar state, neither is mine in Oklahoma. So, but you gotta let them, you gotta let them, uh, reshuffle their deck of, of cash. So I don't know what his reasoning was, except maybe thinking, well, the market is hot. They drew almost 15,000 people. So if I get 1500 or 2000 of those to come back to my show, then I'm, I'm going to be in the, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be in the black. So, so I don't know what the reasoning was, but it was, Hey, you know, Heyman did a lot of those things. He did a lot of non-traditional iffy, uh, strategically, um, you want to scratch your head type thing, but, uh, you know, he, he was always very creative in that respect, but you know, I don't know what I, and I don't know what that showed. Do you know what that show did? You have any idea? Uh, they never ran it again. So, I mean, it well, was, there, it was disappointing. Yeah. I, I do want to mention too, cause I think this is something that we sometimes gloss over because uh, you made a great point when you said it's not exactly a white collar state. Disposable income is obviously going to be at a premium in, in a more socioeconomically depressed area, but we're running the show in December and the next show, the next pay-per-view is in January. There's this thing called Christmas that most folks in Alabama celebrate that can get kind of spendy. So the combination of this is uh, a little questionable that you would run in a more depressed area to pay-per-views right around an expensive holiday. Let's talk well, about the, go ahead the, here. The decision makers though, Conrad are not worried about their disposal income. They don't relate to disposal income as much as a common guy. Uh, and, and, and McMahon, for example, you know, he, he could give a shit less about Christmas. Mm. You know, he's, it's all work. It's all business. If Christmas is a, uh, a day that they're going to run a live show, which we, I worked at many Christmases and, and Thanksgivings, McMahon's favorite holiday is Thanksgiving <clears throat> bottom line. Uh, cause he can kind of mentally justify eating cake and pie, especially pie. Uh, so, and his wife's a great cook. So the, I, and I've had her, her pie, her, her uh, pumpkin pie and all this stuff. I think McMahon's McMonsoon's favorite pie was peanut butter pie at Bob Evans. Wow. I don't know how that came in my head, but, uh, I love Gino, but you're right about the Christmas thing. You got, we all, you got to be careful. You got to be smart about it. You know, uh, AEW stayed out of the pay-per-view business in December, you know, and of course we're not doing pay-per-views every month either, which I think is a smart thing. Quite honestly, it keeps them special. It's kind of the concept that the whole process was created on until it became such a big money stream. You look at some of these numbers on, uh, those, thir- those pay-per-views that WWE, WWE was on that role. Damn, man, that's a lot of money. You know, you get by you know, 590, 400, 570, 605. Those are big numbers. That's a lot of cash and you can't walk away from it. Even if you're a private company or a public company, but uh, again, the December ones are a little bit iffy. We should also mention this is, uh, the last Armageddon. It's not the first Armageddon, but it is the last Armageddon because in 2001, we get the nine 11 situation that we're all very, very familiar with. And, uh, the company has moved away from that name. 
I remember at the time, you know, you guys were doing the invasion angle, uh, in 2001. And, uh, one of the themes that Stephanie's crew would come out to was the old, let the bodies hit the floor song. And obviously with the sensitivities of what happened in New York city on September 11th, that was scrapped too. Did you guys have some sort of round table meeting about, Hey man, we need to rethink some of our names that may have just been tongue in cheek, funny, ha ha for wrestling. Um, what do you think? Uh, no, uh, we had a square table meeting. It was in Vince McMahon's office. And what he said is what we did. Somebody right. may along the way suggested, Hey, Vince, we need to be more sensitive or something. Uh, he never had, he never had issues with that, but sometimes in, in the big, in the big world of his, pardon me, McMahon's world, pardon me. Uh, he, uh, some things like that could be, I don't want to say glossed over, but not recognized. So <clears throat> you got to go back and say, well, how can we make this, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, God almighty, uh, friendly, uh, viewer friendly under the, under the guise of the times that we live in. So, uh, but no, no, no major, you know, look, we didn't do a lot of those kind of meetings, Conrad, contrary to everybody's belief, we had a small <clears throat> group that made decisions. Uh, and he liked it that way because he didn't like sharing a lot of information with non-wrestling people in a big group. Uh, and, and what kind of feedback are you going to get now on a marketing standpoint, you know, they, they could suggest they could, you know, they had their own little meetings, but you know, Vince just came up with listened to somebody and they reminded him that uh, this is not real sensitive and Armageddon is probably not the right name for this damn thing and what it signifies. So, uh, that's kind of how that came about. But I remember talking about it. I remember us talking about it and saying, you know, we've got to rebrand some of these shows. And quite frankly, it's not a bad idea. You know, you guess the, the wrestling fans love new and fresh. All right. And, and I think that's the situation there that, uh, they love new and fresh. And so you give a show a new name, you don't screw with your, your four, your four, uh, tent poles, you know, rumble, WrestleMania, SummerSlam and the survivor series. But the others are to me, they're all. They can all be changed. What's it going to hurt? What's it going to do? I don't know of any other show of those big four that have amazing name identity that you couldn't afford to change. I, I, I may be wrong on that too. Well, they do eventually bring, uh, Armageddon back, but they take 2001 off, um, because of everything that happened. So it comes back in 2002, but by then it's not the WWF it's WWE. Let's talk about the string of pay-per-views that were on here. Uh, this one does 465,000 buys, which is almost a hundred thousand more than the year before. Uh, and it's the most successful of all the Armageddon pay-per-views from that standpoint. It's even up from survivor series way up uh, survivor series did 400,000 buys. Armageddon does 460, uh, that year, the big shows, uh, Royal rumble did 590. WrestleMania did 824. The follow-up show to WrestleMania was backlash and that did 675. And of course, SummerSlam did 570 sort of out of character unforgiven the month after SummerSlam does 605,000 buys, you know, listen, I'm sure you guys were debating and, and discussing your actual business here, but you didn't have a bad pay-per-view that year. As far as revenue goes, I mean, right. it, year over year over year, it's one record after another. Does Vince ever worry that, Hey, uh, we might be peaking. We've got to keep grinding. Does he ever worry that, you know, the, the other shoes about to drop, so to speak. 
Well, he's always focused on grinding and keeping the keeping the work ethic and the and the and the time spent uh, in, in your job, your your specific job. The uh, peaking now, he's not. And if he did, he kept it to himself. <clears throat> so, uh, no, he was always full speed ahead. We could always do better. The thing about pay-per-views that fans need to understand, pay-per-views are not the only pay-per-view in the wrestling business that's driven by its name only. WrestleMania. WrestleMania. Yeah. That's it. Everything else is attraction driven, meaning ladies and gentlemen, if you have the main event that the audience wants to pay to see, you have a great chance of being successful. The match that closes the show will sell your pay-per-views. Now, if you get something hot underneath that, all the better. But if you don't, you load up that main event, like this show we're talking about here today, you know, as we mentioned, six guys, all hall of fame guys, all main event guys, all some of the best that WWE's ever had, uh, they were, they were in that main event, which didn't do any favors to the rest of the card, but it gave us the sellable attraction. Again, remember attractions sell. Uh, pay-per-view. It's not the name of the pay-per-view except WrestleMania will jump out of the box and do great in advance when the COVID's not an issue. We all know that, but, uh, still it's all attraction driven. Let's talk a little bit about the media call you did on uh, December 7th. Uh, you would be asked about Scott Hall and Juventud Guerrero, who had been making uh, news over on the other channel. And you said the company had no interest in them. Of course, they would both wind up with the company. Yeah. Later on though, Conrad, it's sure. not like I was bullshitting and lying on the fucking conference call. You see what I'm saying? When and I was questioned about that, I was not, and we were not looking at either of those two guys in a serious way. So just throw that in there. You ain't got to get hot about it. I am hot about it. Cause it infers that I bullshitted and lied my way through a fucking conference call. That's more, that's better headlines for God's soul. Yeah. He worked us. Or you think JR was being honest? I was always honest based on what I knew or what I could release. Uh, but moving to Guerrera and Scott Hall in that area at that time were not high priorities for us and because of their issues. There we go. Called substance abuse. I said it many times in the show. What's the most, the number one quality I look for in signing a talent reliability. Yep. If you don't know they're going to show up or what shape they're going to show up in or their attitude or their demeanor, are they going to be faced with depression? Are they, are they, are they jonesing for something else? Then that's not reliability. So that's the story on that deal. I, both those guys, Hey, uh, I never said any in this, in this diatribe that they weren't good talents. Right. Scott Hall's a smart, one of the smartest guys I've ever met in the wrestling business. And, and very, very talented. I'm shocked that he's not involved in somebody's writing process or just suggesting ideas. He's very observant and very perceptive. Hooventude, I don't know well whatsoever, but I watched a lot of his work, especially in WCW, where he, where he and his other compadres were featured a lot. But he, both those guys are very talented. It's just that we were not prepared at that time to deal with those potential issues that both those guys had established for themselves, unfortunately. Uh, and bring them into the locker room. So there. <laughs> Let's talk about some other names that were mentioned. You did say you guys were having talks with representatives of Rob Van Dam and had more talks coming and you addressed the Jerry Lynn situation. Uh, 
Allegedly, you asked Jerry Lynn to send a videotape to you so you could give it to the writers, and that message was misconstrued. Yeah. Um, you say in the in the conference call here that you had more interest in Lynn than anyone else and had a good meeting, and that because many of the writers have limited experience with wrestling, they don't know who Jerry Lynn is and need to see more of him to come up with ways to incorporate him into the show. And I think that's uh, an easy thing to sort of misunderstand. It's not that you don't know who Jerry Lynn is, but... Yeah. Some of these Hollywood writers that Vince has hired, they may not. They, that's, and they, t- they said that to me, we, we got to, can you get us some, uh, a highlight tape or something on Jerry Lynn? You know, you seem to be high on in JR. We're not familiar with his work. They didn't know how big he was. They didn't know what his style was, his strengths, his weaknesses, et cetera, et cetera. Jerry Lynn was at, at one time when he was healthy, was a hell of a hand. I, I, and he's a, he's doing a phenomenal job for AEW right now as a, as a coach road agent, producer, whatever the hell you want to call them. Uh, but he, he, we call them coaches and he does a really good job working with talent on that to the, to the point where a lot of the top talents want Jerry Lynn to be their coach for their match. So, uh, Jerry's a very talented guy, but that was a deal. I, I knew Jerry Lynn. I liked Jerry. I would, I would have hired Jerry Lynn, but Vince was always, you know, at a certain point when those riders, they needed to feel more, well, we're just using JR's guys. And we need to have some say in this. And that's where the, the rubber met the road, so to speak, Conrad, you know, you guys don't have enough product knowledge to fucking tell me, uh, who's a good worker or who isn't. If I get you a player and I put him on the team, you as writers, creative people, play callers have got to be able to come up with the right plays to get this guy in the game. We know he can play. At least I know he can play. So, you know, that's, uh, that goes back many years. So the, the writing issues and who's got, everybody's always looking for goddamn power. We want our push that the boys want all want to push and the writers want to have some aura of power where, you know, well, we, we, we took care of, we did that. You know, we, JR brought him in, but we made him a star. Yeah. Well, you're so bright. You're so brilliant. You dumbass. So, uh, but this, it's all of the ego thing. And that's what we face there a lot in that regard, you know, egos. And so it's still, it's still the same in a lot of, in a lot of companies, you know, we got one decision maker where I work now. And so that those ego issues are less, uh, underscored than they have been in any other company I've worked for. Talk to me a little bit about a comment you made there where you said, we, uh, we're tired of just using JR's guys. What, what, who did the writers want? I mean, you, you, they wanted they to advocate wanted talent. They wanted to control the draft Conrad. They wanted to do, they wanted to draft the players, so to speak, using a football term. Right. Was and there, I can understand that to some degree. I really can. Bill Parcells told, uh, said one time in, to Bob Kraft in new England that, you know, if you, you expect me to cook the meals, you gotta let me buy some groceries. And I think that's kind of what their theory was is that, you know, uh, to, in our vision, we need to have a say in who we bring in the look, the size, all that stuff. And what they were going to do, well, this is not going to shock you. They were going to, they were going to kiss Vince's ass even more by bringing guys in that they knew would pass Vince's eye test. Mm. They may have shit character. They may not be reliable, but boy, they look good on eight by 10. So we're not going to have any defiance, uh, reaction, defiant reaction from Vince, because we know he's going to like the six, three, six, four guy, bodybuilder greased up, 
hair wet, tattoos, same shit as now. And, uh, so we're not going to, well, we'll have no pushback. So that's kind of what they, they all, if they did that Conrad, here's the deal. All the talent would look like Adam bomb. Right. Who's a who look perfect, but you don't need 20 of them. Right. So they're because it'll, every time you hire one that looks alike, you start decreasing the value of the incumbents and subsequently all the other guys you hire that look same. So that was kind of the deal there. You know, they just, it, it was all to ingratiate themselves with Vince to make themselves more valuable, proceed value, and to be, uh, uh, have a part of it or they could go to a town and say, Hey bro, I brought you in. No, you didn't. You didn't, you didn't bring in shit. You didn't sign a contract. You didn't make any money offers. You didn't negotiate with agents or lawyers or whatever. You didn't do any of that. Did you meet with the talent? No, I did. So bro, I brought somebody in It's bullshit. So there you go. I'm picking up I what fired you fired up today. God damn it. <laughs> I like red ass Jr. Who's had his coffee first thing in the morning. That's it. John Wayne mug. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, these writers who, who had suggestions for talent they wanted to bring in. I assume they're primarily just getting these sort of grocery lists from WCW. What companies would you want to work for? Just capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good companies like bank of America, which just earned the prestigious just capital 2024 seal bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers offering best in class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit justcapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Well, yeah, probably. That was probably, that's probably a good assessment. It was all ego-oriented. It's all for... I want to ingratiate myself to the boss. Right. I want to make Vince happy and I can make Vince happy by not going against the grain. Do you think Vince would have hired Jerry Lynn just on site? No. Jerry's five, eight, right? Maybe five, nine, but he's a hell of a wrestler. Yes. He can make everybody he wrestled with better. And did I hire Would I've hired Jerry Lynn to headline WrestleMania? No. And that's all knock on Jerry. Lynn. I love the guy. But you, here's the thing. I use baseball analogies all the time in this regard. Jerry Lynn would start for you. He might play second base or shortstop. And he'd probably hit eighth or ninth, but he can play. I, I don't need him hitting fourth or third or whatever in the, in the baseball lineup. You got to have, but here's the other thing about Jerry. Jerry was, had high integrity. He, he was a pro Conrad and he was a positive influence on younger talents. Because Jerry overcame size limitations to earn a living in pro wrestling for many, many years because of his enhanced skill set, not because of his enhanced biceps. <laughs> you like uh, what I did there? I do. I like I'll that. Head. Boom. <laughs> uh, let's talk about another talent 
Shawn Michaels. Meltzer would write, there are some potential stumbling blocks regarding his wrestling at WrestleMania. There are no storylines set up for him, and none of the top guys are apparently anxious to either work with him, and many aren't even wanting him to be brought back into the locker room as a regular because of the things he said. There is the thought of, since WrestleMania is in Texas, of giving him a career send-off that he didn't get after his final match at WrestleMania 98. Regarding WrestleMania, they're wanting to get the tickets up to 66,000, which would be a sellout, and then push hard that it would be the largest crowd ever in the building in the commercial hype before the show. So we know WrestleMania X seven, WrestleMania 17, is going to be the biggest and arguably the best WrestleMania ever. I think WrestleMania 17, Con, I'm sorry to interrupt you. It's from start to finish the very best, uh, WrestleMania that I ever worked. There were other shows that had great matches on them that I love calling, you know, WrestleMania 13 with Austin and, and Brett piece of art. Piece of art, young wrestlers today that don't watch Austin and Brett at WrestleMania 13 are screwing themselves. You're not investing in your own career by not watching the great matches from legendary talents, because it's all about the storytelling and you can't use the excuse. Well, that don't work today. Bullshit. Storytelling works every day, every day. So that was the thing there with the, with that. I, uh, you know, I think WrestleMania 17 was absolutely amazing, but quite frankly, when you go back and look at the card and this is going to sound really screwy and some Shawn Michaels aficionados are going to say, JR's lost his mind for real. We didn't need Shawn on that show. Right. And if you're going to put him in a gratuitous, uh, a, just a, uh, gratuitous booking, I don't, what are we doing here? We're wasting, and he had a, you know, he had a bad, we're going to get him in the ring and test his bad back at WrestleMania in a cold match. And simply because he's from Texas, that's that card was loaded, man. That card was loaded. So we really didn't need Sean there, but we're going to need him later on. And later on, we got him, you know, listen, obviously it wouldn't have made sense at the time because uh, he wasn't in that spot on the card, but Eddie Guerrero worked tests that day. And it would be fun to sort of fantasy book. What if you had Eddie Guerrero and Shawn Michaels and then Kurt Angle and Chris Benoit and then Undertaker and Triple H and then the TL? It would have been bananas. But uh Eddie was not quite to that, at least in the the eyes of the of the fans. He wasn't quite yet to that Shawn Michaels spot. I don't know that, that would have worked. Was there ever any serious consideration or, or were you guys still sort of wary of, well, if you bring Sean in, we got to deal with some baggage? Well, we never were overly concerned about the baggage, but you have to be aware of it. You have to be concerned uh, of it because, uh, the sensitivities of the locker room, not everybody, but there was a good contingent that remembered the last incarnation of Shawn Michaels and it wasn't pleasant. And so a lot of them said, I don't need to be around that anymore. He's not here. We're doing fine. And we were doing fine. Conrad, you, right. you, you, you spouted off the numbers. Yeah, we were doing fine. So, uh, I, I, I think it was just a matter that it was the wrong time and we needed to get the, we need to get all the, all the, uh, cards in line before we, uh, we brought Sean back and at no point in this conversation, have I ever said that Sean Michaels and Ric Flair, Ric Flair and Sean Michaels one and one a, that's how good he is. Right. That's about as, I can't praise a talent any more than comparing them to Ric Flair. Right. Okay. Sorry. 
That's me. Uh, longevity, baby face, heel, big match performances, durability, all those things, uh, Nate Chad and, and, and a great psychology, all the things you look for. And he, by the way, Rick was pretty damn reliable. I don't remember Flair ever no showing an event. No, really. I mean, you know, he's an old school guy. He's Vern Gagne educated. He went through the territories and, and all that earned his spot where the NWA trusted him because he was reliable by the way. And, and, uh, so there you go. Somebody asked me last night or the other day, whenever it was, uh, on, uh, sorry, the, uh, on the, on our zoom call we did. Yeah. We did an ad free shows. Ask Jr. anything. Yeah, it was great. I'd really enjoyed it. Really good people on there. Uh, a young lady got on there and said she came to our last AEW pay-per-view and flew here from Alaska. Brandy, come on. Yeah, that's awesome. That is awesome. I was very, very impressive. Well, the next time you do that, get try to reach out and get a hold of me, and and maybe we can, we can take a picture or something. You know, oh, that's that's impressive to me. It is. So it ain't like she drove down from you know Saint Augustine, right? Uh, she was, uh, that's a, that's a pretty good hike. By the way, the weather right now is, it's, it's cooler this morning here in Jacksonville. It was 35. When I got out of bed, 35, I had turned my heater on for the first time since I've lived here. <laughs> it's probably colder so it's, there than Oklahoma, huh? Yeah. It's about the same. It's colder than hell. Uh, but you know, it's beautiful. Still blue skies. Still the, the beach is still there. The waves are still coming in. They're going out. It's all great. Uh, but anyway, Sean Michaels question was, was a good, we didn't need Sean on that card and we needed to also make sure we had the table set and it would not be fair to him to book him in a cold match. Right. Simply because he's available. Of course, he's going to fit. How much time are you going to give him? He's going to want 15, 20 minutes. He's going to want to work with a guy that can really go. And we had nothing set up for him. So, and again, I, I revert back to the fact that I thought that show ended up pretty good and the WrestleMania 17 and we didn't really need Sean on that show. Let's talk about, uh, somebody that you do need on WrestleMania 19. Although maybe we didn't Nathan Jones gets signed to a developmental deal. He's six foot 10. He's 350 pounds. He's from Australia. He's fresh off of the world's strongman competitions. And uh, he's been training with UPW because of course. Uh, he first appeared on the very first pride show back in October of 97 at the Tokyo dome in an undercard worked match. And, uh, he looks like he's going to have a huge upside, especially here in the company. It's, uh, this is an interesting story. Quite the character. What can you tell us about Nathan Jones? Well, uh, some of, I saw on, the, on our notes, you know, what did the company see in Nathan? Are you shitting me? What do we see in him? We saw 610. We saw 350 pounds. He was jacked up. He looked phenomenal on eight by 10. Nathan was not stable enough at that time in his life. I'm, I hope that he's, uh, is he alive? Yes, he is. Uh, you know, he's a very likable guy, you know, uh, kind of charming at times, but he also had that, uh, aura of mystique, which you can use to your advantage if you're a wrestling booker promoter. But Nathan had issues traveling and, you know, he, and I, I've never been 6'10". Maybe after a lot of crown Royal reserve, I may feel 6'10". <laughs> <laughs> but I've never been 6'10". So I don't know how uncomfortable it is to be flying on an airplane in a seat that's too small. 
you got to fly in first class because he can't sit in a coach seat. And then that pissed off a lot of the guys that were at tenure who were smaller in size and they were sitting in coach and he was sitting in first class. So, uh, but we saw size, we saw a dynamic look and I was hoping that if we could develop his skills, that we would have something, a monster heel course. Of, of, in, in, in every, in every, uh, sense of the word. Let me ask, given his background, uh, and I guess I should mention, cause a lot of people listening to this may not know before he becomes a wrestler in 1987, he was sentenced to 16 years in prison because he did eight armed robberies between 85 and 87. Um, and he winds up, uh, becoming one of Australia's most wanted folks winds up actually serving seven of those years in a maximum security prison and then gets a work release program. And while he's in prison, uh, he didn't have anything else to do. So he started powerlifting and, uh, well, we're off to the races, but when you got a guy who's out here, you know, doing seven years in the joint for eight armed robberies, yeah. are, are you concerned that this may be a, a, a bad character fit for you? You're going to give him a of bunch course. of money and cut him loose worldwide. Of course we had, we, it was a risk. It was a gamble, but his size, his look, uh, and the fact that he had great success in powerlifting globally, he's one of the strongest men in the world, legit, uh, not wrestling hype, but legit. Uh, there was, if we could get him over the hump, keep him sane, you know, you're locked up. Uh, my sense of it was, I want to believe that Nathan was, uh, and kind of a perceived very dangerous in prison. I think he was, I don't want to say solitary, but I don't think he had any bunk mates. Somebody said, how many girlfriends do you think Nathan, Nathan had in prison? I said, as many as he wanted. So I think they kept Nathan to himself. Uh, but yeah, it was a risk Conrad. It was, it was iffy, but Vince likes the calculated risk. That's what he looked at. That's what he called it. Signing Nathan Jones, JR is a calculated risk. So we didn't go into it blindly or not great, not being overly naive. We knew it was a risk. It was chancy, but if, if by some chance we got lucky and clicked, look what we would have had. It just didn't work out that way. Do you remember uh, slick Robbie D It's another developmental wrestler. Robbie Dix is his name here. Uh, I believe he had a cameo in wrestling with shadows. Stu Hart was stretching him. Um, he was stretching a Carl, uh, well, the Duke. Uh, yeah. The Duke. Yeah. And, and this kid was a witness to the torture, <laughs> but either way, he, uh, he finds himself down in OVW in developmental with you guys, but he gets arrested, uh, Thanksgiving weekend in Calgary. And, uh, eventually he's going to be, uh, detained and then, uh, allowed to come back to the United States. Whatever happened to slick Robbie D do you remember this? Yeah, no clue. I have no clue. I know that, uh, and Vince's, uh, book of rules and mine, uh, abusing your significant other is not accepted. Well, we had a bad night. We were both drinking. I don't give a shit. That's your problem. You know, what do you, what do you want? What do you, what we give too many people the past because of the creative excuses that they're able to use nowadays. Oh, I was COVID. I'm so depressed. I don't know this. And so the, you can now people do screw up. They use the COVID excuse. You know, I got the same shit on my goddamn couch in there. You know, oh, well, COVID sure slowed things down. I said, I figured you're going to say COVID. 
but that's the situation, you know, guys use excuses for, for issues instead of identifying and accepting their problem, recognizing and being and up and, and, and being upfront about it so they can fix their problem as opposed to just deny, deny, deny. Now I'm not saying that was the case of rock was with the Robbie. Cause I don't even, I don't rem, I remember the name and it, people said, well, goddamn chair is slipping. Look, we hired a lot of talent. This is a long time ago. And he was a guy that we look, we must've liked him enough to send him to OVW. Of course, that was the next step up. We got, we had a good, we had good results with our guys. That we sent to OVW, but I don't remember the specifics about that situation other than an issue with a female that involved, uh, aggression, uh, and, and all that stuff can't be tolerated. You have no defense for it from the media. Let's say the guy becomes a star. We you know what the media's going to do. They're going to vilify WWE for hiring a wife beater or girlfriend beater or spousal abuse. So we must condone that, right? Oh yeah, we condone it. We want our guys to beat that holy shit out of every woman they see. Come on. So I don't remember his exact story, Conrad, but he was skilled enough to get to, he came from Calgary. We got him to Louisville. So he must've been skilled enough to divert, to, uh, earn that, that particular opportunity, but the specifics of his deal, other than the general sense of his, uh, aggression with a female is about all I remember. He, uh, worked a lot of big names in OVW, Randy Orton, um, Nick Dinsmore, Mark Henry, big boss man, bull Buchanan, Rico names we're familiar with, uh, but he did pass away February of Oh two. So. Uh, another, uh, another tragedy in wrestling, I suppose. Let's talk about the rock starting to really stand out outside of wrestling. It's around this time that the rock is named in people's, uh, magazine as one of the 25 most intriguing people of the past year. And that's a list that no pro wrestler had ever made. When did you start to realize, Hey man, he's not going to be here much longer. Hollywood's got their eye on this guy. About 10 minutes after seeing the scorpion King. <laughs> I went, uh, I sat next to Vince McMahon, pal. <laughs> That's Bruce laugh. Is that a Bruce laugh or a Vince laugh, Conrad? Come on. Uh, well, <laughs> chicken in the egg, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we sat together and it was like it, when Vince and I were on, we were really in one as a, as a, you evidenced by the attitude era, right? It set the pace, it set the stage, it put the foundation in place to really build that son of a bitch. And, uh, it was almost like, a, a, not one word was uttered, but we gained eye contact in the, in the movie theater at the premiere. Uh, Cause I remember uh, Vince, Vince was here and I was sitting next to him, Jan was sitting next to me. And, uh, we kind of looked at each other like, uh, huh, I see. I see something special here. Yeah. He jumped off the screen, man. Yeah. He wasn't like doing a promo or eating, you know, making his pie jokes and stuff like that, which are entertaining as shit. Sure. But he, he jumped off the screen when he was on screen. He was the only person you're really looking at. So we knew then that there's something extraordinary about this cat. Now to say that, oh yeah, I knew he was going to be exactly where he is now producing television shows that are hits around the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, making 90 million last year. No, I'm not, not going to bullshit you, but I didn't, we did know that there was something special about this guy when he appeared on that silver screen and that others 
obviously much more refined about that type thing than us. We're seeing it also. And the offers are going to be piling in for a whole lot more money than we could pay him. And for, you know, and, and kind of bump free money, shall we say the old mailbox and you go and work your ass off. But, you know, rock has been a brilliant businessman in creating mailbox money opportunities. And it's, it's a, nothing short of extraordinary. Hell I've even, he's even got me drinking his, his tequila and I never liked tequila. I like this tequila and I, I would not have tried it had not been for him. Right. So it's real good. So anyway, uh, yeah, we knew you just knew Conrad, you just knew. And you, when, the, when he came on the screen, every woman in the theater was eyes are glued. You know, it was it, the guys loved him because, and that's the mark. So when I had lunch with him that time, we talked about the seven bucks and all those things. The guys would come by the table to say hi to me, but they were looking at rock in a tank top. The women were come by to find out if we wanted something to drink that didn't even work there because they wanted to just get a little bit closer to the great one. And so, uh, you know, his, he had it. He still has it, but to, at that time we knew that something special was afloat, but nobody per, could perceive how great he would become in that world. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I don't know that anybody would have predicted at this point that Vince was going to buy WCW. Uh, it felt like in this era, uh, Eric Bischoff is going to put together his group and they're going to do their own thing. Uh, but there's a report in the newsletter. Uh, of course, at this point in the timeline, the WCW is still on Turner television, although barely since it's being preempted literally for a magic show. Uh, but the company is, uh, now in the sights of the WWF. And people are starting a fantasy book, even to the point that McMahon was quoted in a Bloomberg news story about the attempted WCW purchase saying that he was going to keep WCW as a separate brand and build pay-per-view business by using interpromotional matches. McMahon said there were a lot of good reasons to buy WCW, but Viacom is standing in the way of a deal that made it financially impractical. What do you remember about that? What's the reference to Viacom making it impractical? I'm not real sure about that. Uh, you know, Viacom may not have wanted to be, to air, uh, WCW programming for whatever reason, our, our non WWE programming better said, uh, for the money they were paying. So, but they didn't get it. It's funny. The parallels this has with when I sold, uh, uh, UWF to Crockett, the theory was always going to be to have two separate brands, share time on TVS. Maintain your, uh, your syndicated network, uh, with each individual, each, uh, title and then bill for a, uh, pay-per-views. And the theory was 
you know, uh, well, we could do two pay-per-views from the NWA. We could do one pay-per-view from, uh, UWF and it takes the pressure off having to book a, a NWA a pay-per-view. It takes the pressure off of overexposing guys, but it's also, it's going to reduce some pay because you're not going to be on those events, some guys, and there's where the incumbents, uh, and Crockett at that time. And I'm sure Rick was probably leading the front. This bullshit. We built this, it's our deal. So when we put those guys on TVS, we'll put them in a shitty match or doing jobs and we're going to denigrate and, and destroy the brand. So the opportunity to have a super bowl, UWF and NWA went to hell because of egos inside of Jim Crockett promotions and the leverage they put on the, the pressure they put on Jimmy, Jimmy Crockett and dusty. And quite frankly, dusty didn't have a problem with that because he, even though he was still going to make money for booking cards and so forth, you know, dusty wanted to perform and all these guys wanted to perform. They didn't want to give up a minute of TBS TV time. So, uh, it was very nearsighted. And unfortunately, I think, I don't know what Jimmy, Jimmy Crockett would say. You're going to be talking to him sooner than later. I hear, uh, or at least I hope you are, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was the thing where, oh heck, I don't know how to put it. He should have put his foot down. Mm -hmm. So what are those guys going to do? Okay. Rick, what are you going to do? You're angry because you're losing a, 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 a segment on TBS. You're angry because you're not a part of, of every pay-per-view. You can't headline everything. And so Jimmy succumbed to that and his investment in, in, uh, in UWF went straight South. And also the ego side of, we can't build this brand to make them be perceived as, as good as us. Well, you're not in a wrestling war. God damn it. What are you thinking? You own the son of a bitch. Why wouldn't you want it to be valued as much as you could? It's, it's ignorance, bad business. So the same thing here with the, uh, uh, the angle with the WCW guys, the invasion stuff at some point, the, there were some WWF loyalists inside the company and said, well, you know, Vince, if we do this, they're going to look as good as us. So what we own it, right? We want them to look as good as us. You dumbass. Yeah. You, you know, so it's like the old say, you couldn't sell pussy on a troop train. <laughs> <laughs> The, the, the guys are making business decisions who couldn't even pay their goddamn taxes. So fuck, come on. And there's where a strong, stronger leader, like cowboy, for example, who wouldn't give a shit. He wanted to, the bottom line was all he cared about. And that ain't a bad philosophy. What do you care about in your company? The bottom line. Right. So, uh, that's, that was the same as a parallel there that I'm trying to make between that, uh, in the, the Crockett purchase of UWF and the acquisition of WCW, it was a gold mine. It was a bird nest on the ground that got pillaged, fumbled and kicked and just absolutely was embarrassingly bad when it could have been so, so good. And I think we proved that it could be so good that one pay-per-view we had, as we talked about earlier, hell it, it, it killed people wanted to see it. It was different. It was new. So you get rivalries, you build rivalries, you make trades about once a year. Something like that. Don't screw it up like the draft. WWE's drafts become a joke. I got a lot to say about the draft one of these days. I can promise you that. But nonetheless, uh, that's kind of the situation there, Conrad, as I see it. And again, folks, this is me venting. 
and expressing myself, it doesn't mean OJR is right all the time. It doesn't, but I do believe that, uh, it was a big fumble in the red zone. Let's talk about big viscera. A report came out around this time that, uh, Nelson Frazier jr. Was fired several months back, but nobody noticed, at least in the wrestling news media, what ultimately caused, uh, you to part ways with, uh, viscera. I can't remember exactly. It could have been the fact that his weight got so out of control that he couldn't pass physicals. Uh, people forget the shit like that. You know, he just, he was more really obese. He was like Yokozuna. Our goal to get Yokozuna losing weight was so we could get him licensed. Right. He could continue to work and earn. And I think Vincent may have fallen in that same category because he was a massive human being, a really nice guy, sweetheart of a guy. But it's Vincent's story. He used to take Viagra to watch porn in his hotel room. I'm, or so I'm told I was never with him. So I can't, I'm not an eyewitness of that. Thank uh, goodness. Progress. Thank goodness. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But nice guy. And, uh, but he got off the wrong foot. You know, he got, a, he got crossways with Kevin Nash. He got, you know, he was, he was cause he was so damn big and trying to do things to make himself special. All he had to do was do a leg drop. Don't do nothing else. Tackles, you know, bear hugs. Big splashes, do your four or five things that a big man would do with a huge size advantage. And then, uh, but I think his overall, uh, condition, physical conditioning and his health in general was a major concern. I don't remember ever having a problem with viscera in any way. Always understood. Yes, sir. No, sir. On time. A good dude. He'd starved to death so long in Memphis, Conrad. He finally got a chance for that men on the mission thing. And then, uh, Hey, the funniest, one of the funniest things I ever saw was Bruce and Vince show up. They're both wearing Zubas and muscle shirts and, uh, <laughs> take top deals and fanny packs. So Bruce is like a little version of Vince. So we're in the studio there on Stanford and we're, uh, <laughs> we're doing, they're doing some videos on a green screen with the men on the mission trio and Oscar was rapping and, and, uh, Mo and, and Mabel were doing their thing. And all of a sudden Vince started dancing. I'm standing behind him. So I can see this whole picture. So Vince starts dancing like he's really got rhythm, right? You know, they say white men can't jump. Some white men can't dance. <laughs> and then to top it all off, Bruce started mimicking Vince. It's like they were doing a little duet. He was so cute. What a Christmas card it would make. So, uh, but anyway, that was, I remember that memory of those guys, but they, Vince liked that group, liked those guys. He liked their ups, their potential, but you know, it just, and they got us, they got us, they got a little break. They made some cash, but then Mabel was the keeper because again, his size, he's huge. But I think that was the issue. Conrad's best. I recall again, it wasn't a disciplinary issue or anything like that. It may have been that we've just gone as far as we can with him on the limited skill set being so large, he can only do certain things. And he got off the wrong foot with some of the, some of the talents that had influence with Vince. And, uh, so he was King of the ring, you know, he, he had a, he got a chance to make money. Yes. So, but it just, uh, that's how I remember it anyway. What do you remember about the Jim Ross cookbook? It's in the newsletter here that it's already sold more than a hundred thousand copies. And now it's in its second printing. Did this, uh, meet or exceed expectations? It certainly seems like it. 
Yeah, it exceeded them, no doubt. It's a very pleasant surprise. My Jan, Dennis, Brent, and myself worked on that, uh, mo mostly over in our in our home in Norwalk, Connecticut, uh, on the kitchen table. Uh, it did really well, and it's. Uh, I was thinking the other day of getting Simon and Schuster has access to it, so I was thinking about buying some, putting them on my website, which is a must stop. Folks, it doesn't cost anything to look at jrsbbq.com. Looking is free. It will always <laughs> be free. So check it out. We've got all these new packages, all these things. Are great. We'll talk about that later, but uh, the holidays are here. Business is good. Business is fixed up real well. We're, we're ahead of our orders. We're, we're doing good. Uh, but that, uh, that cookbook did well. It was largely my mother's recipes on things. You know, she kept... I don't know how your mom does her recipes. My mom cooks a lot by cooked a lot by memory and just feel, but the ones we found were like a little scraps of paper yep. that she'd write and put in the family Bible, all these things. There's this there's hodgepodge. We found enough good stuff to make a cookbook out of it. I, I wrote some stories some top 10 lists, stole that from Letterman. Uh, but it, it, it did well. So yeah, it was, it was a good thing for us. And, uh, I was proud that, that, uh, Jan and Dennis for that matter got to experience the success that, that they did for contributing to the book. Well, let's get to the show itself. Armageddon 2000. We're finally here. Uh, Meltzer would, would sum it up and say the undercard was somewhat flat, but to me, no show with a main event that good can be anything, but a thumbs up, but does get a thumbs up from Meltzer. Uh, there was one dark match at Scotty too hottie pinning D'Lo Brown after the worm spot. Uh, he would note in the newsletter, it was originally supposed to be a six man with Steve Blackman teaming up with too cool to take on Lowdown and tiger Ali Singh, but it's turned into a, a singles match on heat due to uh, Blackman being hospitalized with a bleeding ulcer. Boy, that's, uh, that's not a fun day at the office right there, especially when you're a badass like Steve Blackman, I can only imagine how uh, frustrated he must be to be off a of pay-per-view missing a payday. And laid up with a bleeding, bleeding ulcer. Oh, Mr. Congeniality was really pissed. It gave another reason to be mad at the world. <laughs> so, but Hey, look, by the way, Scotty and D'Lo had a, had a decent match, uh, cause both of them were talented and they were unselfish. Right. D'Lo had no problem putting Scotty over and they, they had a, they had a good solid opener. So we didn't lose a lot by missing the six man, maybe a little sizzle. But those two cats, uh, delivered the steak and uh, it was a good way to get us started. Let's, uh, let's talk about the, uh, scene backstage when Mr. McMahon arrives, you can already see some shitty cars in the background. And, uh, obviously, uh, you can see the, the sawdust truck, which is going to be for the big finish later. I've always been curious, you know, whenever we do 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff, uh, we often talk about. Who helped set up the sets and get ready for the pay-per-views and the stunts and things like that. And he would tag in David Crockett to chase down some of that stuff. <laughs> Who's procuring crappy cars for sets and things like that in this era for you guys. Ellis Edwards. There you go. Ellis did that. And he had a nice staff, but yeah, Ellis was the guy that go to, to make sure we had all the props that we needed and so forth. Let's get to our first match. It's Dean Malenko and uh, Perry Saturn and Eddie Guerrero winning an elimination match over Matt and Jeff Hardy, along with Lita uh, Meltzer would say the moves were all on target, but the match lost a lot because it was terribly rushed. 
Yeah. Uh, they only get eight minutes and six seconds. He liked it pretty good though. He gave it two and a quarter stars. Uh, lead it as a moonsault block, a spinning head scissors and a DDT from Malenko. And uh, then a big superplex off the top. He picks her up and rather than pin her, uh, he does a, a Billy Robinson backbreaker and finally finishes her off with the clover leaf. And after the match, Lita said, I knew I could beat him. Uh, and Meltzer would comment, I guess that means Malenko has to lay down for her soon. This is an interesting look because you've got the radicals, essentially Malenko, Sider, and Eddie Guerrero. We know they're going to go on to have much different futures here in the company, but they're taking on three bona fide hall of famers, a really over group with a, a young audience. And Lita is now, I guess in the new sort of China role, she's wrestling guys here. What'd you think about Lita being involved in an otherwise all male match? The same thing I think about all intergender matches, Conrad, I wouldn't book one, not for me. So I'm not going to judge for everybody else like them and are the China devotees that, are, that, that listen to our show. Uh, uh, they're going to take exception to it. I get it, but uh, I just, to me, it's unrealistic. Uh, there's certain, certain scenarios where they can be physical or get involved, but to have a regular match is absurd. And why Lita was in that match, obviously it was a creative deal. It was cool. It was different. Let's change it up. You're going to change it up for the sake of changing it up. It's not a good reason to change it up. So I, I didn't like the intergender stuff and it had nothing to do with her work. It just wasn't believable right. that a, 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 a woman of her size could go in there against three world-class, literally without a doubt, world-class guys and hold her on. Get some offense in it, put everybody in a bad spot. And I'm sure that if the truth be known that the radicals are probably saying, what the hell have we got ourselves into? We're opening the show in a mixed six person tag. And one of our adversaries is a female. What's what the hell's up with that? So that's what I would say. I, I Meltzer Meltzer was, is a mark for some of those guys in them. And I am too, some of those guys in that match, but, uh, uh, that's why I gave it two and a quarter stars. I, they, by putting a female in it again, I'm going to sound chauvinistic and I don't get in trouble because you're talking about athletic competition, physicality. It just isn't realistic. And so that's, uh, that's my take on that deal. And I'm maybe old school and backward and, and wrong. And, and I don't have a problem admitting I'm wrong. I don't think I'm wrong on this one. Special occasions. Okay. If it's, if it's done right and it's the end of a story or the beginning of a story, something. But it, just to have that match on, I thought was a, a less than creative booking. Let's talk a little bit about the Dean Malenko storyline here. Um, the footage of Dean taking Lita out on a date during the build for this event is worth the, the price of the pay-per-view by itself. It's so cheesy and so bad. <laughs> and Lita kicks Malenko's ass in the match for like five straight spots until these super uh, suplexes are off the top rope. Jesus. Um, Talk to me a little bit about the idea of, Hey, we got to add, we got to add some ha ha, some gaga to Dean Malenko. I mean, he comes in as one of the most well-respected wrestlers in WCW known for great matches, a very technical wrestler, but the Iceman uh, persona is real. There's, there's not a lot of, uh, pomp and circumstance to Dean Malenko. It's just down and dirty traditional wrestling. Do the writers view that as a challenge to try to show another side of his character? 
Do they know that that's the only way that Vince will invest in him if he's more than quote unquote, just a wrestler. And did you think that was a mistake in hindsight? Well, I think any talent should be able to expand their character and, and, uh, uh, their scope, you know, what do we, uh, you know, how can I be, how can I improve my game? What are areas that may be considered deficient? And if Vince may have said in a meeting, we need to do, create some scenarios. where we get more personality out of Malenko. Right. If he said that in passing, then some enterprising young writer looking to ingratiate themselves with the big boss. Oh, I got an idea. So, uh, but I thought that, uh, I thought the date vignette was kind of entertaining, quite frankly. And here's the irony of that thing. You know, Dean's one of our coaches in AEW as well. Another valuable contributor to what we're doing. Uh, he, uh, behind the scenes, he's funnier than hell. He's got, a, he's got a great person, dry sense of humor. You know, he, Hey, what a chick across the road, you know, whatever that's got to do is right. He's just a funny guy. Right. And, uh, but I, uh, and he's battling Parkinson's. And he's courageous. He's fighting through it. And he's always, he always in a good nature. I see him every, every week at TV. When we're doing TV, I see him every week and we always have conversations. I enjoy talking to him because you know why Conrad, he makes me laugh. He's funny. We needed that personality out of him in front of the camera that we weren't getting. Right. And so the idea was, well, here's one vehicle that might accomplish what we're looking for. So, uh, I thought the vignette was well done and. It's just, you know, I could probably come off too harsh on the intergender stuff. I get that too. But you know, when you go through all these, uh, debates, discussions, better said, probably with Joni Lauer, China, it just left a bad taste in my mouth. Now she thought she was way, way, way above wrestling. Any women didn't want to wrestle any women. You know, I wish we had, uh, you know, uh, Chris cyborg or Ronda Rousey. Or what's the other girl's name? That's a really good shooter there. Uh, NXT. Uh, oh yeah. Um, boy, we're both, uh, silly today. Shayna Baszler. Yeah. She wouldn't have that same attitude if she was booked with Shayna Baszler. Right. But, she, but book with ivory or Tori Wilson or Trish. None known as shooters, by the way, I hate to break that to you folks out there. <laughs> <laughs> that's not why they were hired. Uh, but you know, I, I, but all, those are just some miserable days. It's where a talent was, it was a lot more about them than the whole picture. It was a lot more about, you know, uh, and, and I heard, uh, on busted open the other day, you know, Bubba Dudley made a, a, a nice comment. I've used it myself over the years that it's not about who goes over. It's about who gets over. Yeah. And she didn't quite grasp that concept at times. And of course, in a certain, uh, in a run there until she found out that her beloved was seeing somebody else. Uh, she had a, she had a, a, a confidant that had influence with the chief. And so she played that to the max, but that's why maybe that's why I'm tainted on the intergender stuff. I don't know that we'll ever have one of those in AEW. We might, hell, I don't know if we do, I'll call it like a best of my ability, but it's not my cup of tea. I think it happened on the, on the Jericho cruise already. Did it? Who? I think Kenny Omega was in a tag match, uh, with some ladies. No, let's talk no. about the next match here. William Regal is going to bend uh, hardcore Holly to retain the European title in just under five minutes. 
Meltzer would say it was another rushed match, but Holly does get a big pop when he's announced, of course, as being from Alabama and, um, it gets a star and a quarter. Uh, Meltzer would say Holly did the Lariat with the steel plate, but as Regal was selling Raven ran in and gave Holly a DDT and Regal pinned him. If Raven is going to use the DDT as his finisher, not that everyone should be banned from using it, but usage should be limited by other wrestlers only to positions where it has meaning rather than in a transition that everyone does. And I think that's probably something that is worth discussing here now, because once upon a time, it was the most over finisher around in the eighties, with Jake, mm-hmm. the snake, but now it does seem like something that you see over and over. And recently we saw Shawn Michaels talking to, um, triple H and undertaker on some social media platform for WWE. And they joked that, Hey, Sean, your finish is now, uh, the opening move to match talking about the super kick. Do you think that some of these big moves should be more protected or is that just the evolution of the business? No, that evolution of the business is bullshit or the business is evolving. How the fuck do you know it's evolving? Not you Conrad, but in general, uh, come on. Yes. They should be protected. Of course they should. Well, we don't sell right left hands. If you hit me with your left, I'll register. But if you hit me with that, right. I'll sell like a drunk man. Well, come on. So stupid. The DDT is a finisher. And instead of a transition spot, Sean Michael, same thing. They were kidding him about, but they were ribbing on the square. That's exactly the way it is. The super kicks are just a part of the, of, of the flow of a match. Nobody wins with it. So that, what's it say to you? Does it say that back in the day, guys were more proficient at delivering a DDT or a super kick than they are in this generation where things are evolving. Things are changing in the wrestling business. I want some proof of that shit. I want someone to prove to me that the changing of the wrestling business is, uh, is, is what it is today. And that, uh, it's making a difference. It, it may be what it is in some people's eyes, but is it making a difference? I say no. So I told a kid the other day at AEW said, everybody does the same fucking spot. All you guys get outside, you cluster up like quail. You stand there in a huddle, friends and foes together side by side so that you can catch some leaping idiot going over the top who never wins with this move. And they don't get an advantage with this move. It's, you know, they're looking for a, the, the, the holy shit chance. What got that going? I think they love to hear those. Holy shit. Holy shit. This is awesome. It's a spot folks. It's a trapeze act. Come on. I'm sorry. Like God damn it. Conrad, you motherfucker. You goddamn Alabama bastards. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't buy into that. The DDT is a great finish. It should be used as such, unless you're not as proficient as Jake, the snake was. And so you can't really execute it. What if I said it on commentary, boy, folks, don't you remember those DDTs and somebody hit that it was over. I guess these guys just aren't as good at it as they used to be. Well, that, that ain't going to help anybody. No, but, it, but there's a thought there. Uh, it's same, same with the super kick. So yeah, I, I I'm not big on that. The business has changed. Tell me how conclusively how the business has changed, where you can, you can bastardize established moves. You know, I, I was telling you the other day we're talking, uh, maybe I'm here. I'm not sure where I watched a match with a young burn Ganya mm-hmm. from the uh, Chicago amphitheater with Luthes. It was so well told. The story was so well told. They went an hour. It was so well told. And it's centered around, and you're going to say, oh my God, I couldn't, I couldn't watch that an hour. 
it was centered around Vern's headlock and, uh, excuse me, lose the headlock and Vern's sleeper hold. Both trying to, their, their adversaries trying to avoid getting into those predicaments. And after a while, you got it. Oh, here comes Thez. He's trying to get that headlock on him again. So the headlock takeover, and it's just, it was good stuff. But it was simple to understand and simple story for the announcers to tell. So I, I think that's a, I think that we've, we've really taken some shortcuts, some liberties with in ring stuff to where uh, we do things now that are really sensibly illogical. Not all the time, but, and the theory is, well, let's do more. Right. If we're going to do, uh, you know, how many, how many tope suicidas you need to see in a goddamn match or in a show that's Excalibur's favorite call tope el suicida. Oh, okay, good. And he's right. I know what he's, he's better at that stuff than I am, but the bottom line is how much is, how much, how much barbecue can a redneck eat? Let's find out. Uh, Oh, here's a great line from this match, Alabama, 4 million people and 15 last names. <laughs> Boy, Jerry Lawler was on his game on this show. Yeah. I, you, do you see where I brought Lawler and his little family in for the, his birthday? I did. Yeah. You took yeah. him to a, a Jags game to see the Browns, huh? Browns. Yeah. We had, it was a good game too. 27, 25. Uh, my boy, Becker Mayfield had a nice day. Lawler was dressed up in Browns gear, like a little kid going to school the first day. Yeah, he had, he had, he had orange Zubaz on and all, everything Brown's cap. No, he didn't have a cap on, but all the shoes. Uh, and, uh, he was 71 on the 29th of November. So, uh, he said, I asked him, how old are you now? I'm 71. <laughs> he said, but you know, JR, just a number. Yeah. You telling me yeah, damn right. It's just a number. So, uh, but we had a lot of fun uh, that weekend and that's some good food. Tony Khan put us in the AEW suite, which is very nice of Tony to do. Uh, but Tony's a wrestling fan, right? He respects Jerry's contributions over the years. And he loved Jr. and the King back in the day. Lot to love. Yeah. Thank you. So, well, we had fun. And the irony is fiance, Lauren, I think they've been engaged like 10 years now. That's right. Uh, <laughs> not a bad theory. I think, uh, I think her birthday was the next day, the 30th and her little, her little boy's birthday was the preceding Tuesday. So we had three birthday celebrations. Uh, we got them a cake. It was all, it was fun. We had a good time. And, and unlike the, uh, self that the tweet I sent out with Adam Cole and Britt Baker is, is living in and, and me, which costs a lot of little, you know, innuendo in your world, Connie, <laughs> uh, the Lawler thing was, you know, people got the fact it was his birthday. He's a huge Browns fan and they stayed here with me and, uh, and Tony Khan was a great host. So it's just about respect, friendship. And look, you know, we all know, uh, tomorrow's not guaranteed. So let's just let's celebrate 71 in a big way. And uh, I'm glad that we were able to do that. Me too, man. Let's talk about the next match. Val Venus. Is going to pin China five minutes and two seconds. Uh, Meltzer says that China's offense looked good, uh, except for a clothesline. And he says one minute into this, I'd seen about enough intergender stuff to last a long time between this and the opener. Amen. Eventually ivory trips, China leading to Venus, getting the pin with a fisherman suplex. And after the match, China goes to power bomb ivory, but Venus stops her. 
and lays her out with a doctor bomb half a star. So this is our third match on the card and we've already seen two intergender segments. This is uh weird 20 years ago, huh? Mm-hmm. It was, and it was a nearsighted booking. So it's the same old wrestling theory. Every great promoter has done the same, had the, made the same mistakes. The talents make the same mistakes. Well, if one hurricane run is good, right. Then five must be really good. Or are they just watered down? They're watered down. You screwed yourself. And the other thing about this is, uh, you know, Jody was so proud of her physique, her look. Val Venus is a big guy. Yeah. He's well muscled, you know, a very talented dude. Uh, and he had to have, had to have help the trip by ivory to beat China so they could protect, give her an out. So of course, Lawler and I doing the show, we had to make sure we protected her. That was our job. But then, uh, he finally, he finally about got another move on her at the end, which should have been the way the finish went down. You gotta have an out. She looks, she got beat by a bigger, stronger human being right. who happened to have testicles. You're a big, strong human being and you ain't got testicles. So because you're testicle free, doesn't mean you're a bad person, but, uh, I, that was kind of how she was protected. And I thought sometimes we went overboard on that deal and they set up a match with, I think we set up a match with her and ivory. Ivory was a lot better worker than China, but China ate her ass up. Like she was, didn't even exist. It wasn't competitive. It was nothing because that's her mindset. And she knew she could get away with it. Next up in the show, Stephanie seemingly totally unconcerned that her parents, 34 year marriage was breaking up, was talking to her father about more pressing matters like stopping the main event. Meltzer would say this was no big deal, except it was the beginning of an, uh, (laughs) a bunch of hype for a match we already paid for. The undertaker does an interview giving the history of the hell in the cell match. And it takes forever. Meltzer would say the interview nearly turned him heel. But I guess this is to set up every hell in a cell match. Undertaker has to throw someone off the top of the cage. One positive is that after the main event performance and the hype and the way it was built up after the fact on raw is such a happening that the annual hell in a cell probably can stand along with the Royal rumble as the gimmick match where the gimmick itself can draw a buy rate for the future. Even if this one doesn't deliver a big buy rate, the legend of this match being pushed so hard afterwards combined with the Foley matches probably makes it a modern version of the battle Royal in the seventies or the war games in the eighties as one of those annual must see events for the fan who may only buy two or three shows a year. And boy, you talk about hitting the nail on the head. Meltzer may not have known just how on the money he is because even today, 20 years later, the legend of the hell in a cell and it being its own pay-per-view exists. Yeah. And it's not going to change because we've always done it that way. That's the reason for continuing Conrad what they're doing. We've always done it that way. It it was the, the smart statement, smartest statement in that summary by Meltzer was it was, it was designed to set up to do one a year. The, the battle Royal that he's influenced by is the, uh, annual holiday battle Royal of the cow palace. Well, Meltzer grew up in the, uh, San Jose, that battle Royal was the biggest thing of the whole year in the Bay area for wrestling. So that battle Royal stands out to him. And, uh, uh, the, 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 the war games was a big deal. And then guess what? The war games, let's just take it on the road, do about 10 of them. 
right? Right. Remember that? What a one-off. It wasn't special. It was everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so that's a lack of creativity. It's a lack of booking. It's a lack of conviction in building other stars and other matches. Uh, but this, uh, situation here was they're trying to replicate the undertaker's match with Shawn Michaels and hell in a cell, which is classic that often gets overlooked because of, uh, June, 1998, when the undertaker threw Foley off the top of the cell, you can't recreate that moment. Any, any opportunity to try to recreate that drama looks like you're imitating You're you know, you're not being creative. You're just copycatting. And changing a few, uh, changing an opponent for the taker. So, uh, you know, I, I think that it's over, it's been overexposed, quite frankly, once a year is great, but all is based on the attraction of the men that are in it or the women that are in it, but, uh, have, well, I have two hell of cells tonight, or we'll have, you know, two pay-per-views a year with hell of cell on it or whatever. I just don't agree with, I think it's, I think it shows a lack of commitment and creativity. And it's easy, it's easy booking, quite frankly. But again, you can't take for granted what Shawn Michaels did with Taker and what Mick Foley did with Taker. Had there been other hell in cells that you believe, Conrad, in your mind that stand out above either of those two I just mentioned? No. They've been trying for 20 years. Yeah. Ain't gonna happen. Have it once memorialized Foley and uh and Taker from Pittsburgh. Sean and Taker and build around that. And, and, you know, will history be made again. And it's a, and it's once a year. And that's how you advertise it. Once a year, the demon structure goes up. There's a, a weird thing here mentioned that I want to bring up. It's from the newsletter. Vince does an interview with Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe. And he tells people to stand up, to demand the main event be canceled because he cares about the welfare of his wrestlers. And Meltzer would say, you know how that mind works. If the latest lawsuit settlement is going to cost him $7 million, then he's damn sure going to use it as an angle to get his 7 million worth out of it. And a scary number of people stood up. Now, maybe you're not exactly putting two and two together, but this is the era 2000 where Owen, that whole thing was settled with Martha. And yes, the number that everybody has is 18 million, but insurance and other sources paid for a lot of that. 7 million came out of Vince's pocket to Owen Hart's family. And the idea that he turns this into a stand up. If you care about the safety of our wrestlers. And then Meltzer says, uh, this is a reference to the $7 million check. He just wrote about Owen Hart is Meltzer just grabbing at straws here. Or do you think there's something to that? I think there's something to it. I don't know to what degree. I think there's something to it. Uh, it, it, it comes off whether intended or not, whether on purpose, uh, whatever it comes off as distasteful. It's distracting in a negative way. So that's what I think about it. I, I don't know what his mindset was of doing that. Look, all I knew is the busier Vince was during a show, the less he was in my headset. And I relished those days. So I didn't question it. Uh, you know, if, if we were by ourselves, where we would, we would, uh, converse and not confront, I might ask him, but never ask him a question of that, that, that nature. If anybody else was within earshot, just never did it. That's not, he didn't like that. And you didn't get your order. If you don't get the order, if you don't ask for it, 
And the way you ask for the order with him is you, you converse in private, in private. I don't give a shit if it's Helen Keller sitting in the room with you. He ain't gonna come. He ain't gonna come clean if he's another human being. If there's another heartbeat in the room, it's not. Let's do the next match here. It's Jericho and Kane in a last man standing match. They go 17 minutes and 16 seconds. Meltzer says after all the non wrestling, the first thing these guys did was brawl backstage, including a spot where they both punched Midian. Finally, they get to the ring and they both worked hard. But the 10 count knockout thing doesn't register well because it requires a more believable product than they're selling in order to have fans accept that selling for 10 seconds and then just recovering. He didn't love it. He only gives it two stars here. Um, they're, they're brawling to the back. Jericho comes out to bulldog cane through a table, but the table doesn't break. So they do it a second time and the table breaks, but maybe not in the manner they'd hoped. Uh, Jericho then shoves a setup wall of 20 barrels welded together, theoretically onto Kane. Although the nature of the way they fell was uh, obviously totally protected. Kane never got up except a hand peek through. And for all we know, he's still under there. Pretty corny ending that nobody could take seriously. That's Meltzer's report. what do you think? Watching this one back too long. Those matches in the beginning, we talked about this. They only had five minutes or four something or six or whatever. Uh, this match is about, uh, could have been 10 bell to bell, 10 minutes and got all their story told, leaving the ring right away. Takes the audience completely out of it from the get go. Not smart. So uh, I thought it was, uh, not well laid out and you know, nobody has more respect for Glenn Jacobs or Chris Jericho than me. And I hired both those guys. I believed in them. They're my recruits, but, uh, they were, they didn't run the right plays that day. And that's not all their fault. They were given instructions what they were doing. They may have lobbied for more time because everybody does. Everybody thinks more time. I'll, it'll, I could tell a better story. It, 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 you can, if you know how to tell a story, but if you're a shitty storyteller, 10 minutes of shit is still 10 minutes of shit. It don't matter. So I thought the match was too long. I didn't like the stipulation. Here's the thing. You matches that you eliminate understandable easily transferable and processed false finishes. When you eliminate those by and large, like the 10 count, what's the false finish eight, nine. So it's a count. So uh, the, it's, there's no kick out. There's no foot on a rope. There's no rolling out of the ring. There's just a 10 count. So I guess the, it's I guess it heightens the, the closer you get to the 10. I don't know, but I, I think it's anticlimactic by and large. If you don't have serious juice, both guys have been bleeding like horses. If they're beating each other in the face and they don't put a bruise on their face or blood, whatever it's, it, it kills their gimmick and it kills the matches gimmick. So I didn't like it, Conrad, and certainly not because of the effort. Both those guys always work hard. They just, they were dealt, they're running the wrong place. Yeah. These guys are capable of a lot better match. This is just, I don't know if Styles clash, wrong sort of gimmick match, uh, bad night. I don't know. Uh, they've been working a program for several months by this point, but I don't know that this one was exactly, uh, checking all the boxes. The next one though, is got a wide variety of folks. It's got edge and Christian, and they're going to regain the WWF tag titles in a four way over the Dudleys, uh, road dog and K quick and the champs bull Buchanan and good father. Uh, so it's a bit of a cluster when you've got this many tag team folks working together. 
The finish would see Steven Richards deliver a weak looking DDT on Devon on the floor while Christian did the Tom Mikazi move on Bubba leading the edge, scoring the pin. Uh, that's from Meltzer's write up. He didn't love it. He gave it two and a half stars. They get nine minutes and 42 seconds. Uh, what do you think watching this one back? Uh, I thought it was okay. I, I, I enjoyed it by and large. It's another match where you take, you got eight guys and eight talents involved in one match. Your last match tonight's got to have six talents involved in one match. So then to be shocked that the card wasn't really strong as it, you wanted it to be, but look what you got left to book to use. Right. And then some of that talent was mismanaged. Like I said earlier, you know, uh, Jericho and Kane didn't need 17 minutes. They didn't, it was just appeased both guys. Uh, and, and let them get a win, so to speak. But, uh, this was, uh, this match is okay. I thought it was laid out good. It's just one of those deals where you, everybody's got to get their shit in, you know, you got eight guys, they all got to have some shine. Somebody's got to do the honors. And, uh, but I thought it was okay. I really did. I, I had no issues with that. Some of my favorite talents were in that match. So, uh, it was fun to, it was fun to call. In this era, what did the office see was the upside as edgy Christian, were they still here? Just sort of, at least in your eyes and Vince's eyes, were they destined to be permanent tag team wrestlers? Or did you see them as individual single stars? I think, uh, it's not, you won't, I don't want to say always, but more often than not, you, um, when you put a team like that together, they came in together. So we kept them together. Right. But I think the eventual plan was to see who was going to spin out. It's like the, it's like the ensemble cast of friends. Who's going to become a star out of that group. You know, Jennifer Aniston's going to make great movies, you know, stay busy, become a global star. But what about good old, uh, you know, uh, those other two dudes, the, the three guys in that show. Yeah. They, none of them, they all have been busy, but they don't, none of them had to have had, you know, a great career type superstardom, global success, blah, blah, blah. And I think that's what you kind of look for here. And that was easy to spot who that was going to be edge edge had it. And then Christian made himself, he developed it. And uh, fundamentally both guys were sound Christian may be more fundamentally sound than edge. I don't know, but edge had the charisma overtly lots of charisma. But I, we had high hopes for those guys. They came in, they weren't making any money. I didn't have to pay them much to get them to sign, uh, to maintain our budgets and all, all those things. And I knew that, uh, that was just a, you know, here's your, here's your, uh, here's a couple, here's a couple of bucks. You, you we're going to make sure you can eat and pay your rent. But you know, neither guy was married. I don't Christian. I think Christian wasn't married at that time. Uh, so anyway, uh, and Edge was going through women like uh, me and you do French fries. <laughs> <My hero. laughs> uh, but uh, but uh, yeah, we like we like we like both guys. But Edge seemingly was going to be the star of the duo, and uh, and he and it worked out that way without a doubt. As a heads up, uh, both Edge and Christian will get married in two thousand one. So they're both single fellows here, probably yeah. in, enjoying the uh, the fruits of their labor. They, they did, they were, they, they did quite well and they're very happy. I don't think Edge turned anything down, but the covers. 
Well, let's uh, let's talk about Road Dog and K Quick. <laughs> what do you think about their pairing? We're fresh off of the New Age Outlaws. Road Dog had 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 a different degrees of success as an individual star. They tried some individual things with him as the roadie and whatnot. But once he becomes a tag team with Billy Gunn, man, they're off to the races. Uh, but now we're trying him in a new tag team, this time with Ron Killings, who we now know is our truth, who's been a longtime favorite of Vince McMahon's in this era though. what do you think of this pairing road dog and K quick? Well, I certainly willing to give it a chance because both guys had a lot of charisma. They seem to like uh, working together. Uh, it put road dog in a, a very prominent, don- uh, lead role of that duo. And, uh, but. The magic in tag team wrestling with the road dog was Billy Gunn. For whatever reason, they clicked and it worked out real well for both guys. Uh, so it was worth a shot. And Vince has had a 20 year love affair with K quick. Yeah. And, uh, Ron is a very talented guy. He can talk, he can wrestle, he can win, he can lose. He's, he's just very engaging and he's actually that way, uh, behind the scenes very easy to converse with and so forth. So a good dude. And, you know, I think his ethnicity in that era helped him because the company wanted to become, as they should probably 20 years before want to become more diverse, but that was a trend in the wrestling business. You got to remember Conrad, when I got in the wrestling business, the, the territories ran by white promoters had an unwritten rule that there could only be so many African-Americans on their roster or people of color. And I've heard that. I'm just talking about bullshit or I just made that up. I mean, I've heard those conversations. Uh, the real watch famous remark to one of the NWA uh, people was, uh, my favorite color is green. I don't care who they are, what they are. My favorite color is green. So this black thing don't work in my territory. And we had a lot of African-Americans top baby face, top heels, Booker, whatever, who could do the, re- the best job as it should be. The best people, no matter the skin color, should get the jobs. And so uh, no quotas. I'm, I'm embarrassed sometimes with the NFL. Well, we're going to really strengthen this Rooney rule. You got you to you got to interview a minority. Why do we have to? Why does that? Why should that even be an issue? Why wouldn't these owners want to hire the best people for the job to win ball games and create more profitability for their NFL franchises? Right. Do they have to be encouraged because, uh, well, there's a rule. We got to interview a, a black guy. That's so bullshit, man. Black lives do matter. Number one. And secondly, uh, you want the best guy for the job. And if he's, if he happens to be a, a person of color, so be it. You know, I saw the other day where for the first time ever, they had an all in all black NFL officiating crew. You see that on the, on the, online somewhere. Yeah, I did. It's really cool. Uh, I thought that was a great move forward. Uh, same deal where, uh, the, uh, the Browns came to Jacksonville, as you mentioned earlier to play the Jags and, uh, their special teams coach, the Brown special teams coach, uh, became a father and he didn't want to, to risk any health issues, uh, by being exposed. So he stayed home and the, and the coach that day was a female. First female position coach to do a game in NFL history. It made hardly any publicity. So I think that, uh, I'm glad that we're recognizing. I'm glad there's some checks and balances in place, but it's, it's just embarrassing to me that some NFL owners largely, are, are there any black NFL owners? Are you aware of any? I don't know of any. Right. 
So uh, anyway, that's my soapbox on that deal. I just, it's just, it's just sad that we got to have rules so that you hire, you will interview a minority your mother. For, your, for your job. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Let's talk about the next match. We got Chris Benoit winning the intercontinental title from Billy Gunn. We just talked about the new age outlaws and, uh, well, Billy Gunn is the intercontinental champion here until the end of the night. Benoit beats him in 10 minutes and three seconds. Uh, Meltzer would write gun and China were not aligned together in either of their matches, nor was any reference made to them as a pair. Gun stock really fell with this performance because if you can't have a good match with Benoit or Guerrero, well, gun didn't take any chops probably because of his shoulder injury. The first half was pretty solid, although not a lot of heat. Benoit did a figure four gun reverses it, but Benoit made the ropes. Benoit did a rolling German suplex, but missed the diving headbutt. about this time gun blew up. Benoit still carried it pretty well, including a great spot where Benoit had to fight and fight on the ground before locking in the crossface. but gun made the ropes after what was supposed to be a tilt to world spot into an inside cradle. I believe Glenn was gun was blown and just dropped Benoit who tried to flip himself around. And it's probably the worst looking spot you've ever seen in a Chris Benoit match. Benoit went right to the crossface for the submission, two stars. Listen, we don't want to pick on our old pal, Billy Gunn. We both think a lot of him, uh, but Benoit outclassed him here. And I can't help, but wonder how much of that is just because of the shoulder injury, you know, Meltzer makes reference to it, but also can't help, but get little digs in about, oh, we just dropped him. Well, if he's got a fucking shoulder injury, that means he can't take chops. All right. probably slows him down here too. So taking the belt off of him is probably a decision made based on the injury. Uh, but this is sort of the, the tale of Billy Gunn singles run. He had been so white hot as a tag team guy. And now because of injuries or because of the rock, just straight up burying him, whatever it is, he's really hurting his stock as a singles competitor here. Um, what'd you think of this match and, and how, what can we say about Billy Gunn's foray into singles action here. It was a bad, it was a disappointing outing. I was very, uh, let down by it. I thought it, it should be Billy Gunn is when he was healthy, was one of the very best athletes we ever had on the roster, running, jumping, strength, agility, just, a you know, you'd want him on your pickup basketball team. You'd want him playing a uh, tight end on your flag football team type thing. Very, very good athlete. I'm not so sure. I don't know how the. Uh, well, I'm scratching my head about Meltzer's analogy there or his, his summation about you can't take chops if you got a bad shoulder. I can see you can't give chops if you can't if you have a bad shoulder, but if we're getting hit in the pecs, I don't know what that does to affect your shoulder, but I may be looking at it wrongly. I don't know. But I, I know he had a he had a shoulder issue. And maybe the other issue is the fact that where the match is placed on the card, again, he'd had all this great success. He was making a lot of money. 
uh, Billy and, and uh, road dog, both are making over seven figures a year yeah. as a team. So lots of merch, uh, and so forth and so on. So I think, uh, I was disappointed in the way the match was, and I don't know how invested Billy was in doing the honors. The, uh, the next match is ivory. She's going to retain the women's title in a three-way over Trish and Molly Holly. They get a whopping two minutes and 12 seconds. So that's, that's, that's insane. Yeah. That's completely insulting. This show was so ill-timed. It was not even funny. It's all over the damn place. And I, and, and I don't understand why that should have been an issue, but it sure as hell was. And, but two minutes, come on, man, two minutes. Now there's, we're talking two minutes, bell to bell. They got, they got their little entrances. Thank God they didn't take away from their match time. Or maybe it did. Hell, I don't know, but you got three women, Ivory, Trish and Molly Holly, who are, were great locker room people. They're very loyal to the company. They work their asses off. They all tried to get better. Ivory was, uh, and, and Molly were helping Trish get better because Trish was a star of that group, the look, the personality, the smile, all that good stuff. Uh, but it was, a. Uh, it was, it was, it was, I was, I felt so bad for those women because here's the thing. They know weeks in advance, they're going to work on a pay-per-view. Right. And I probably had booked that match in some house shows leading into it. So they could get a feel, get their rhythm, their timing. And here's so we can do this spot that worked real well there. This worked, you know, this worked good. This didn't do so well, whatever. So I do that a lot. Give them, that way they had, when they got to the site of the pay-per-view, they, mentally felt good that we can pull this off because we've already had this match, but little do they know, uh, in the gangland hideout of Elliot Ness, two minutes and 12 seconds was going to be their time. It's going to be their number. Right. And I don't know. We didn't do two minute, 12 second house show matches with those ladies. No. That was not the ob- object of running through the match. So yeah, I might give them six or eight minutes. Enough to tell her story, get their story settled in. But, uh, and you gotta, and, and here's the thing, the women knew because they're more objective than the men by and large, that, uh, the, uh, star of the match was going to be Trish. Everybody's not going to get all their shit in. And they had no problem with that because they're pros. Right. And they're more unselfish than their male counterparts as a rule by and large. Now I understand today because women are making a ton of money and, and especially in, in, uh, uh, you know, some of the ladies in, in the WWE in the last couple of years, three years or so have gotten great contracts or great salaries. And that's what their own salaries. Cause they're not, none of them are drawing any money. They think they are, they think they're big stars. They've got to get the, because they got a great salary. You sell no goddamn tickets cause they ain't none to sell. So it's not about selling tickets anymore. It's not about, I'm really over. You see the house we had on top, right? There's some, some successes there. I get that, but quite frankly, uh, it's just, it's, it's kind of misleading in that regard, but the women by and large are more objective, more team oriented. And I can promise you that even though Trish was not going over that ivory, uh, who was the champion and Molly Holly did all they could to make sure Trish got some shine because in two minutes to get everybody some shine is laughable. Ain't going to happen. 
the uh, finish comes when Holly delivers a Liger bomb on Stratus and then Ivory jumps on Stratus for the pin. And after the match, Test and Albert came out and corner Molly. Crash runs in and challenges both, but they laugh at him. Finally, the acolytes return and clean house to a very healthy pop with Bradshaw laying out Albert with a stiff clothesline. The match is almost a backdrop for let's bring back the acolytes, right? Yeah, just get them on the show. How do we get the acolytes on the show? Well, here's an idea. Okay. Sort of, that's, that, sometimes it's that simple. Yeah. You got guys that are unbooked that aren't advertised to be in something and you, you make sure that you got uh, a spot for them. And that was the acolyte spot. Let's talk about what's next. It's the main event. It's really the entire show. Um, Kurt Angle's going to retain the WWF championship in a hell in a cell match. It's got all the stars, triple H, the rock, Steve Austin, undertaker and Rikishi. They get plenty of time, 32 minutes and 14 seconds. Meltzer says it starts out as a battle Royal in a cage with everyone paired up. It's rock versus Rikishi undertaker versus angle and Austin versus triple H, uh, for several minutes here. Um, triple H is bleeding first and he's going to Meltzer would say he did at least two blade jobs and took the spotlight. Guys started switching partners. Triple H turned on Rikishi and gives him a pedigree for a near fall. Austin does the uh, stoner on angle, but undertaker makes the save. So we're going round and round and Meltzer would say there was talk during the week of doing an injury angle with triple H, which is why they kept teasing the idea of someone getting hurt and fully resigning. Uh, but triple H showed up and said he was feeling better and not to do the angle undertaker choke slams Austin, but triple H makes the save and uh, Vince McMahon comes out with Pat Patterson and uh, Briscoe to tear down the cage with a truck. But for some reason had a bunch of padding in the back, which would break the big fall later. It made no sense as to why they would uh, pull the cage down without taking the ring itself. Uh, so they hooked it to the door and pulled the door down. And that gave everyone a chance to brawl in the entrance way. What'd you think at this part in the match? Did you think this is too overbooked and we're building towards one silly stunt, uh, or were you into the action? Well, I think, uh, by what Meltzer said about Lawler and my work that night, we were into the action. Oh, for sure. We were telling stories and, and the guys are giving us plenty of, uh, music to write those lyrics for. So, but you know, we were in that era of the, look, the people don't really realize sometimes the impact that Foley off the top of the, the cell had on the overall, uh, presentation of some on some pay-per-views, what's our big, holy shit spot. You know, Shane McMahon, you know, jumping from some high alto, you know, high level, uh, always trying to find something else. And, uh, I don't know. I, I'm not a, I'm not a stun guy if it fits, but if your whole match is built around one stunt and Rikishi going off the, off the cell or whatever. And, uh, uh, so he could take a nice safe bump on the flatbed of a truck, you know, I, I didn't think it looked good. Right. So I don't know. I, I'm not a big, it seemed too forced. I guess that's my point. It seemed too contrived, but, but overall, uh, those guys had a hell of a match. Oh, so really? I mean, they delivered, you were there. I, I loved it. And it is a great match. Let's continue to sort of run down a recap. By the way, if you're going to watch one thing from this show, go watch this match. Uh, Meltzer would say they had a junkyard like setup with beaten up cars everywhere that people took bumps on. 
A funny thing is it was almost exactly minus even more dangerous spots that WCW did with the junkyard battle Royal, uh, where half the crew got hurt and it was so poorly lit. It came off as a disaster on pay-per-view, but here triple H puts Austin's head through a windshield. So he bladed and then triple H gives rock a pedigree on the roof of a car. So he bladed the undertaker would, under, uh, would uh, slam angle on the hood of a car. Austin catapults triple H into the hood of a car and then undertaker gets nailed with a chair. So now undertaker's bleeding. Um, Austin and triple H go to the top of the cage and they're brawling up there. Angle joins them. Austin gives triple H another stunner. Now undertaker's on top. Now angles blading, perhaps for the first time in his career. And then Rikishi goes up top. Eventually everyone, but Rikishi and undertaker climb down. And then Rikishi takes the big bump backwards off the top of the cage into the heavily padded back of the truck. Uh, Meltzer would say it's filled with padding, a tarp and a ton of wood shavings. It was basically an amusement park or gymnastics pit bump, but if they're going to do it, they had to make sure that they pretty much hyped in that they were going to do it. They had to mitigate the risk. And, uh, I think it's probably a good decision in hindsight. Uh, Meltzer would say until fans tire of these bumps, they're going to keep getting them done. It's just a matter of how to attempt to provide a plausible reason for something being there with padding to break these falls. And we saw that years later when undertaker did it with, um, with Shane McMahon at WrestleMania. And he also says Ross and Lawler were incredible here, turning this into a near classic. Eventually rock and Austin square off in the middle of the ring for a big pop for a quick WrestleMania tease. And this is really what everybody was there for. We know we're marching towards WrestleMania 17. Um, rock delivers a rock bottom on angle, but then Austin delivers a stunner on rock and triple H hits a neck breaker on Austin. And angle crawls on top of rock for the pin and Meltzer would write pretty clear. This finish is going to be brought up several times between now and April of how rock had angle beat for the title, but Austin stunned him and cost him the match after the match. Of course, Austin delivered a stunner to angle and left Meltzer loved it. He gave it four and a half stars. And I think winning this match really helped solidify Kurt angle as a main event competitor. Um, he beat basically everyone in the company in the same match in hell in a cell. It's uh it's a pretty remarkable thing, but in hindsight, what people talk about is the Rikishi bump. Uh, what do you think of, of angles performance or the performance of everybody? And then specifically the rather controversial Rikishi bump. Well, as I alluded to, I wasn't overwhelmed with the, the stunt. Yeah. Uh, it, just because of stunts in general, you know, uh, Mick Foley going off the top of the cell in Pittsburgh in 1998, in June of 1998 was not something that had been talked about for weeks. We were, knew we were going to do it. I had no idea what they were going to do. It scared the shit out of me because they're right above Lauder and I'm not working for looking out for our own safety, even though you've got to be aware of it. But the bottom line is, is that, uh, you just didn't envision somebody doing that. You just didn't. And, uh, and it had such a impact on when Foley hit that table, uh, the announce table. So, uh, it was just spontaneous. This seemed to be more contrived as I mentioned, and that took away some of the effect it had on me as a announcer and as a wrestling fan. Uh, so I wasn't crazy about the stunt, uh, and, but I thought the match itself leading to that moment and how the finish went down. It was this timing was boom, 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 really good. So I, I, I love the match itself. And I thought the talents all look, you gotta be very cooperative. You gotta be very professional. There's six of you in there. 
you're not all going to get your shit in, but those guys did a pretty good job of uh, getting their shit in. Shall we say, uh, in that match, it told a good story. It led to bigger things. As you talked about Conrad, uh, WrestleMania 17 was rocking Austin too. And, uh, so I, I, it, it set a little something up for that. I thought everybody got serviced well in the match maintained uh, a little shine on everybody. And then of course, then it showed that Kurt no longer would ever have to eat at the kids table, uh, at Thanksgiving. He's a, he's going to sit the grown up table from now on the rest of his career. And, you know, he's a guy, quite frankly, I'm really surprised that WWE has not used Kurt if nothing else in a one-off of somewhere, uh, because I think he's healthy now. It seems like he is when I see working out on online, the things he does on social, he looks great. So I'm surprised they haven't uh, used him in a, in a way, cause you know, how, how good would he be challenging the, for their championship? I'm going to win it one more time than I'm retiring type deal. So, but anyway, that's another story for another day. But, uh, I thought Kurt got him a made man that day in the sense of pro wrestling terminology. He hunted with the big dogs. He, he led the pack. He's no longer eating at the kid's table. He is a made man and he can do anything he wants and, and continue to make a lot of money. And that's what he, that's what he did. It's pretty remarkable to go back and watch this match. Meltzer would say the WWS final pay-per-view event of its biggest year was sold as a one match card. And even after buying the show, most of the first two hours of the show came across like an ad to buy the show. We already purchased after a flat undercard, there was nothing that was terribly bad, but nothing that was particularly good. And then it dragged at times because of too much hype that would have been best served being on Sunday night heat. But then the main event finally took place. As good as everyone's expectations of the hell in the cell match with six men was this turned out to be much better to the point that it may have been the company's best match of the year. And it had a lot of strong pay-per-view main events while the match patterning is similar in these multiple man matches. These wrestlers are getting enough experience that the usual clusters that resulted from them were no longer the case. It's pretty remarkable that that Meltzer who normally sort of poo-poos gimmick matches and certainly these multi-man matches. He thinks this might be the best match of the year and it certainly delivered. The crowd was super hot. I can't recommend that our listeners go watch this one enough. Um, what do you take of, 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 of his opinion that this might be the best match that the company had in the year 2000? Well, it's certainly arguable and it's in the, if it's not the best match, uh, it's, uh, in the discussion without a doubt, Conrad, you know, so subjective to say the best match of the year based on what, you know, uh, whatever, but I thought the guys executed greatly. I thought everybody came out better than they went in, which is a, if you can accomplish that in a multi-person match, you're really doing your work. Uh, and I think that Pat Patterson's, uh, influence on laying this match out, uh, was very, is very prominent. Pat had great ideas, amazing finished man. And he had the trust and the confidence of the talents, including especially the rock Austin. Some of those, those guys, uh, Kurt, uh, but everybody in general, quite frankly, uh, Pat was the guy, Pat was the guy that could lay shit out and, and connect the dots. So Pat's contributions in that match, uh, was, should be noted as I'm doing, but I thought the, uh, the match saved the show. 
it, we knew going in as a one match pay per view. You hope that you get some surprises. You hope that Billy Gunn and Chris Benoit have a great match. You know, you hope that, uh, that 14 tag kicked it, kicked it in gear and they were just, everything clicked. There's things you hope that will, uh, will go above the expectations or normal expectations. And I don't think there's anything on that card. Well, there was one other match I liked, uh, I can't remember what it was now. So it must've been that I must not liked it that much. But the last match was the show saver, and that's why it got thirty over half an hour of wrestling time. And I thought the guys used their time effectively. And that's one case I could make the argument that yeah, the the uh, time limit suited the match, horse position on the card, and the talents involved. So it's really well done in all those areas. All the boxes were checked. So to me, uh, if you, like you said, Connie, you're going to watch one match. Uh, and you just want to see a really good match with a lot of major, major stars and all of them pretty healthy. Uh, then that last match is the one to go see. It's just, uh, six guys in concert with each other. And that's very rare. You see that, especially in today's world. Let's do some fan questions. We got lots of questions about Armageddon 2000. If you've got a question for Jr. in our episode next week, you can ask it right now on Twitter. It's at Gr- uh, Jr. grilling on Twitter. It's at Jr. grilling on Twitter. Of course, you get all these shows early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. But next week, we're talking about Clash of the Champions 4, uh, which went down at the UTC Arena in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And when I think about that building, I think about In Your House Final Four from February of 97. But in December of 88, it was all about Flair and Wyndham taking on the Midnight Express, Road Warrior Animal working against Dusty Rhodes and singles competition for control of the six man championship, whatever that means. Uh, Dr. Death in there with the Italian stallion and the fantastics working with Eddie Gilbert and Ron Simmons. We'll talk about that next week here on the show. And if you've got a question about the old school Crockett days in a weird transitional period to the Turner buyout, because it's all happening right around here. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little more next week. And if you've got a question again, ask it at Jr. grilling on Twitter. Uh, Dan wants to know who was instrumental in the Rikishi bump. How did it play out backstage and how does the entire dynamic work on the night and for the match? All cells have a big bump. Uh, was he nominated or was he up, uh, or, or, or was he, uh, asked to be the person to take the bump? Well, it kind of made sense considering he was the assailant yeah. in, the, in the, in the car crash, just trying to connect a dot storyline wise there. Plus he was a huge man. That's going to look mighty impressive going from the top to that flatbed trailer or truck. Uh, so I think that was that situation that the, the, the assailant connection was pretty viable. And the fact that he was a, that the size, his size was going to make that bump a little bit more spectacular, or at least that was the intent. Patrick wants to know if you think this is the most underrated main event of the attitude era. He says, you've got five of the biggest names of the era. No disrespect to Rikishi, a major stipulation tons of blood and a surprise winner. He thinks it was so, so good. What say you, Jim top five main event of the attitude era. Uh, yeah, arguably, you know, it's, you gotta go back and look at a list. It's just off the top of my head doing this podcast today. I'd say, uh, that's a safe and accurate assumption that it was one of the better, if not top five, top 10 main events in the attitude era. Uh, and, and again, it's so subjective to say, but it checked all the boxes for me at star power, at continuity, 
they had the, I like an environment like that. I don't know how you get out of that environment without some color and I'm not going blood crazy. It's just logical, but we seem to be more than willing in, in wrestling to, to don't, to not use logic at times. And it's just logical that you're going to have a, a bloodbath inside a steel structure. How, how could you not? And I thought those guys did that very well. We got a question from Nick here across the pond. He said he absolutely loved this pay-per-view as a kid and he ran home to watch his VHS recording from channel four. Uh, what kind of relationship did the company have with channel four in the UK and inevitably, why did it come to an end? Well, they had a good relationship. You know, there, there was, it, it comes to an end because of either cash or creative. <laughs> it comes to an end because there's either money involved that was not going to be re-upped or, or raises were not incorporated or the ratings were not good, but channel four was a big, big get for WWE at that time, major station. It's like being on uh, ITV or, or yeah, ITV. Right. And, uh, where I did that world sports show that one time. Yep. Like it was ITV, it was. good people, big station. You know, when my writing partner, Paul O'Brien lives in Ireland and he can get ITV and that show off the antenna, you know, it's a monster. So it was a good get for, for WWE. I don't know why exactly it came to an end, but normally it's either the, the money became an issue or the ratings became an issue. Let's, uh, let's do a question from Matt here. He wants to know who came up with the hell in a cell as a main event concept for this show with a six man uh, prior to this, it had always been one-on-one, uh, why not just triple H and Austin here on top? Would it have made the card, the undercard more entertaining? We'll probably give it more star power and depth underneath those guys. No doubt. It just seemed to be, you know, the, the, the brand of the cell was something the company wanted to cultivate. The company had belief that the hell in the cell had, had marketability, the name hell in the cell, uh, kind of falling trailing a good distance, but kind of trailing the, uh, WrestleMania name. Hell in the cell. It has, it tells a story and it conjures up memories of greatness that fans that were in that era saw and enjoyed. So, uh, I don't know who came up, you know, Vince probably came up with the, the idea. Somebody may have suggested it in the, in the creative group. Uh, but then enhancing it to a six man, six people was, uh, in, in interesting. And so, but it worked and it, it, it works. So I'm not sure who. You get the credit for, but more often than not, the credit should go to the chairman. Uh, let's talk about the, uh, the triple H thing from the month before Steve wants to know how was triple H able to recover so quickly and compete in a hell in a cell match after being dropped in a car from a hundred feet the month before we sort of alluded to it earlier that they were thinking about doing an injury angle to write him out of the show here. Uh, and even in your media call, you acknowledged, Hey, maybe we brought him back too soon. In hindsight, does that hurt your storytelling or do you just have to sort of suspend your disbelief at times you, in wrestling? You have to suspend your disbelief. You know, you, you, you dance with Brungan Conrad and, and, um, uh, as they say, um, uh, yeah, it's, a uh, you kind of make do with the hand you're, you're given and it's up to Lawler and I in this situation, uh, uh, specifically to try to make some sense out of it, to communicate that information to our viewer. So our viewers, 
So I, it, yes, it was awkward. It wasn't well planned, but here's what happens when you get, you start doing short-term booking, you know, uh, if they knew the book if McMahon knew and his, his, uh, his group knew that, uh, they were going to be doing this match. They would, they would have had more time to set it up. They could prepare for it better. They, they might not have done that, that exact angle. Another stunt, you know, we started getting away from wrestling and we're doing stunts. And some of them just aren't believable and they seem to be forced. Uh, and none of that's good for wrestling. So, uh, but I'm, I'm sure that, uh, if we, had, if the, if the Armageddon event had been booked out earlier, September, October, whatever, but I'm telling you, it probably was booked in, uh, I'm guessing early November, at least the concept of having Armageddon and the concept of doing a hell in a cell match. And then guys started being added to it because they realized, well, we don't really have anything hot for this guy to do. So instead of booking him on an undercard match to strengthen the undercard, uh, you put them all in the main event and, and, and try to get everybody's input. There's some very creative minds in that match, Connie, very creative minds. All these guys, takers, sharp, Austin had a feel triple H everybody there, you know, had could contribute something. Uh, and what they could do best or what they're willing to do that might be sensationalistic. But the bottom line is, is that short-term booking will end, will expose some of those creative flaws. And I think we did that on the show. Let's, uh, let's mention that, uh, Jericho is, is getting a lot of momentum from the fan base here. He came in with a big splash, of course, uh, the prior year. Uh, he's going to become the man about a year from this pay-per-view, but San Penman wants to know why did they not give Jericho the babyface champion run? Despite him being the third biggest merchandise seller in this era behind rock and Austin, surely star making was on the agenda when Austin was starting to break down. And I think a lot of people, we got a lot of questions like this. Would it have made sense for somehow Jericho to be a part of this six man main event? Oh, it's a conspiracy theory <laughs> out now. Conspiracy Conrad. We didn't want Jericho to get over, you know, so what the, what are we, what are we saying here? Well, I think the well, real deal, the third amount of merchandise, he should have done this. We should have done that. You know, God almighty. It boils down to Vince was not sold on him yet. Right? Not yet. Right. How long had Jericho been there? Uh, over a year. Yeah. So he's he, a year. He's, he's just arriving. Right. He's making, he's made a, he's made a loop of towns once. Uh, and look, I always had great belief in Jericho. I still do this very day. Uh, I've said many times on the air that he's into interviews and things like this, that he's the real MVP of AEW. Sure. He influences more people. Uh, and he's involved in great storylines because he's not knocking Tony Khan. But he works closely with Tony on, their, on his creative. Jericho creates a lot of his own ideas. It just wasn't the time. Well, he sold the third amount of merchandise. What does that mean? Right. He sold eight T-shirts or eight thousand. Third amount. Hey, I saw it online. Dave had it. Goddamn Conrad. Third amount of merchandise. What are you saying? He should be in the main event. He'd have done great in the main event. It wasn't his time. And quite frankly, uh, his combined efforts with Kane on this show sucked. So that didn't do him any favors. No, 
but eventually, Hey, I remember calling a game a XFL game outside in the sleet in Chicago on a Saturday night, and then jumped into McMahon, Air McMahon and flying to Phoenix and doing a pay-per-view the next day where Jericho beat both Austin and triple H. You remember that? Yep. I don't know how much merchandise he was selling, but I'm sure that was the impetus of him getting that booking. Goddamn his t-shirt sales are amazing. He's Mr. T-shirt. Come on. So yeah, it, it's easy to go back and review. It's well, what if, and what if I don't, and that's why we do the show. I love it. But the bottom line, sometimes it's just stupid. The third amount of t-shirts sold. Okay. Quantify that Conrad. What's that mean? You can say one of your guys, your, your mortgage guys is he's the, he's the third highest grocer on the show on the, on my company. Okay. What's that mean to you? It means he's more than he's not as good as one and two. Is there a big dip drop gap, whatever it's, it's, it's irrelevant information. What, what are the numbers or is it just a ranking? And we don't take the numbers in consideration, which should be the only consideration. So, uh, that's how I look at that deal. God damn. You know, what more star power could you have in that match? You had six of the biggest stars we had. And, you know, Rikishi was just hovering, getting kind of, you know, in the, in the loop, but you telling me those other five guys could have been replaced easily. Bullshit. No matter how many t-shirts are selling. One last question. Then we'll wrap it up. John wants to know since Armageddon 2000, why hasn't WWE implemented the six man hell in a cell match as a yearly tradition? It seems to have been a big hit and certainly was fun to watch the first time. It feels like they'd sort of move away from that. And then instead, if you've got this many guys and you want a gimmick match, you just put them in the elimination chamber instead. But I don't know that anybody talks about an elimination chamber matchup as lovingly and glowingly as they talk about this one. In hindsight, do you think they maybe should have done more multi-man hell in the sales like this? Uh, unlikely. That's the easy way of booking. We could, you know, it's easy. It's, it's, uh, it's, a an easy way to, to book. Uh, it's lazy. If you had the right six guys and they all had distinct, uh, stories ongoing, maybe, but it's the same theory that we discussed about the hell in a cell in general, WWE still jonesing to replicate what Michaels and Taker and more specifically Foley and Taker created that, that talk, that buzz and especially Foley, you know, my God, I get that. I get something about that every day in here in 2020. So, uh, I don't, I don't think that because that one match is successful, that's generally the, the theory of a promoter. Well, let's, let's do this again. And I mean, I mentioned earlier in a flippant ass remark about, uh, war games, Well, one is good. Let's just do 10. And it's, it's a, it's a point of diminishing returns. It just doesn't make sense to me. If the right stories are in place, he had six guys that could really pull off the match from an athletic standpoint, psychological standpoint, no problem. But I don't know that that's the case right now in anybody's company where you got six stories, six great stories deep, uh, or six guys deep on their character development to be able to do that. But it's not impossible to replicate. It's just going to be really, really challenging. Well, what's going to be challenging is to find a better deal than you can at jrsbbq.com right now. You've got a bunch of different holiday bundles, including a JR's collectible cutting board 
but maybe my favorite is Jan's favorite. And man, you've got everything included in this one. Uh, I mean, it's overwhelming the spread that you see here and you're offering a huge discount. Uh, and of course you can pick up the book under the black hat. Even your first book is on there too. Slobber knocker. Right. It's yeah. all jrsbbq.com and it's all in time for Christmas. Right, Jim. You're doing right. Conrad. Absolutely. Uh, business has been good. You know, business has picked up. Uh, we're working every day. My little team there in Norman working every day. That's no bullshit. I'm not looking. I'm not monsooning it here where I want to break my arm, patting myself in the back because, uh, I have books shipped out here to Florida where I am now. Uh, cause I get in no airplane right now, the COVID issues as they are, it's so unpredictable. Um, I'm staying in Florida. I stayed here for Thanksgiving. I'm going to stay here for Christmas simply because I'm not going to fly right now. Just don't feel right about doing it. I'm too vulnerable and I don't want to get that. I'm in the high risk group anyway, with my age, but nonetheless, I'm, uh, I'm just not going to do it. So, uh, we're working every day and it's been really good fans are supporting us. They see that we make a good product Our customer service is going to be on, uh, uh, re reproach or whatever you want to say, whatever that word is. Uh, so it's all good. Uh, but business has been really nice. We, we pride ourselves in customer service. I, I have these new boxes made heavy duty boxes where if you, if Conrad, if you wanted to order a package, uh, and you want to order for 10 people with one, uh, visit to the site. We can get your order and ship it to 10 different locations as it could more than that. If you wanted to, I'm just using that as a hypothetical. So it's really easy to, to do the boxes are ship friendly, uh, or you can get the boxes in and you can gift wrap them yourself. Uh, a lot of things like that. So I think the offers are good and the product's good. We, you know, we all, uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I, I made a very simple Turkey sandwich the other day and I made it, I made it from, went from good to great with uh, our mustard. Mustard and a little tomato is really a good sandwich, quite frankly, and healthy. It's got one gram of sugar. So, uh, I'm, we're doing good. I'm blessed that we are doing so good. And, uh, my partner, uh, my, who runs my site, Stephen link is the one that suggested I had a Jan's favorite, but we, she got rebooked. She got booked <laughs> in the booked in the main event. So the best package we have with the most items is Jan's favorite. We had three of those, those uh, packages, those box packages. So, uh, in addition to our other stuff, and we've reduced some prices and, and I think we're even going to be ready to do a discount on, on the, under the black hat, just at the holidays, just to stimulate and, and move, move some more of those. So it's a good deal. It's a, it's a, and like I said before, uh, I say this tongue in cheek, you know, it costs nothing to look, you know, we're on our phone or on our computer or whatever all the time anyway. Log on jrsbbq.com and just check it out. Look at it. And, and again, it will cost you nothing to look and you might see something there you like for the wrestling fan or yourself that you can suggest to somebody, Hey, Hey dad, I, my dad's an old wrestling fan. He'd love this type deal or my brother or my buddy, or maybe I'll get it for myself. So we appreciate the support on that deal and, and her, so, certainly hope everybody has a great, uh, holiday season. We're just kind of getting started here. Yes, we are. We're excited for next week too. clash of the champions Four seasons beatings from Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you've got a question, we want to hear it. It's at Jr. grilling on Twitter. Of course, Jim is at Jr's BBQ on Twitter. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on grilling Jr with the voice of wrestling.
Mr. Jim Ross. And you know, you're going to get it heavy, heavy brother. God damn it. Conrad, you fat bastard. Heavy on the mister and happy holidays, everybody. <laughs> hey everybody. This is Dan Bespris, host of fantasy NBA today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.